0: Is farting in front of Barry episode. <laughs> He's breaking a little wind there in front of you, Albert. Huh, oh, just a little. My God, I have to
1: fumigate the house now. Holy <laughs> cow. <laughs> He's right. a
0: good boy. He's a good yeah. boy. Here on episode 189, we are going to be discussing many things today. We are going to have part two of our interview with Sean Waltman. Once again, we really appreciate Sean joining us, discussing his days as a fan. Some of his early days in wrestling, good stuff. We've got our Match of the Week this week. We are going to, it says on YouTube, January of 90, Barry, but after some research, I found out we're actually in December of 89, the night after Starcade 89, which I believe was Future Shock. Was that what it was, Bear? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. And we're the day after that in Peoria because, you know, big WCW town, Peoria, Illinois. And uh, we're going to be talking about that. And then, as mentioned on the old Facebook group, and Barry, We are going to be looking at our top 10 Clint Eastwood films. Barry will be offering five. I will be offering five. And let's see what else we're going to talk about. We are going to be introducing a new segment this day in cwf history so who do i call to who do i say hey help me out with this it's greg good no no it's not greg good it's bob McKinnon. no it's not bob mccann it's howard bad no it's not howard Baum. it's barry rose barry going to be discussing this day march 18th in cwf wrestling history amongst other things we're gonna be talking about all these fine things. I tell you what, Barry, to start off with, uh, the day of this recording, we found out yesterday uh the unfortunate passing of Jerome Young, New Jack. Very quickly, some memories of New Jack for the fans of Barry. Yeah.
1: So if I think of New Jack, I think of a couple of things. I uh I saw, and I we're gonna you and I will will definitely be discussing his time spent in Smoky Mountain. Uh, but if, what I, the first thing I think of, I saw New Jack, shit, I'll say it was 10 years ago, and he was at Uh, a fan fest in New Jersey. And they used to do these roasts the night before. And uh, they discontinued it. And it it was really famous at one point, 15 years ago, there was a comedian that was there. uh, And I forget who the comedian was. And he was doing Owen Hart jokes. Uh, And Scott Hall got very offended and was going after the comedian and kind of got a little bit of notoriety. But I was there. And uh, they were doing the roast of Terry Funk, which, I mean, that's, you know, that's the one I wanted to be at anyways. And New Jack was there. And I got to tell you, New Jack comes out and he's wearing a suit, very reminiscent of, say, Michael P.S. Hayes. So it's very colorful, but at the same time, really, really personable guy. Uh, great on the mic. And uh, he really made that night very enjoyable. But I, I know for you and I, you and I did discuss this off air. We we both are in agreement. What New Jack did in Smoky Mountain, and certainly you got to give a lot of the credit to Jim Cornette, who had the vision to to put this team together and bring them in and uh, and give them the mic and tell them to be really controversial. But that was like revolutionary stuff. And that was uh, stuff that a playing in the Deep South, which is what Smoky Mountain was, was shocking in a lot of ways, but also garnered literally nuclear heat for these guys. This was a really big deal. Uh, and I, I think that the next thing for me with New Jack Memories of New Jack will be the amount of love that was put his way uh, when his passing was announced last evening. Um, everybody reached out. People that we know that had worked with him loved the guy. Fans loved the guy. And I always thought, I always, you know, I guess in my own head, I I already had this preconceived notion that New Jack was this real controversial figure and there were going to be people who loved and hated him. I didn't see any hate whatsoever. I really just saw people, uh, praising him and saying how much they enjoyed his time. So a young guy, Jeff, 58 years old, it's a shame when somebody that young passes away.
0: Yeah. And I did see, uh, his, I believe his wife put out on Twitter, uh you know thanking all the people that had reached out to her or posted you know memories of him and 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 then of course Barry just because people can be assholes she mentioned that apparently she had received uh either text or calls from people wanting to know if she had any autographed oh. New Jack stuff that she could send them so of course that they could sell it on you like really really people you know it, uh, uh, it, just the lowest form of of humanity. Does so within twenty four like hours, there are yeah. No, no, everybody. it hadn't even been twenty four hours. It was like wow. literally like within twelve, they were calling, trying to profit off the guy's death. You know. That's so. Uh, yeah, that's very scuzzy. I will tell you, folks, what I told Barry. I loved the guy in Smoky Mountain. He and Mustafa Saeed were like the ying and yang of one another because New Jack would come out there. And he would just be, you know, oh, my God, the interview where he he talks about, you know, uh, for what I just did, they used to hang people like me uh, in Tennessee. And then he does the bit because this was like in the mid 90s. He said, shout out to my boy, OJ. You took care of two of them for us. And I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) You know, and think about the kind of heat in a small town in the south. You know, going up to like Hazard, Kentucky or something like that. Shout out to our listeners in Hazard, Kentucky. (laughs) But, you know, uh, it just, you can imagine the kind of heat the guy would have got. And then while that, while he's doing that, you got Mustafa Saeed, who's like mugging for the camera that he's just batshit crazy and making all these really wild faces. And so you're sitting there watching New Jack and you're going, holy shit. And then you're looking at Mustafa and you're breaking up laughing because he's making these funny faces. And it was just like the perfect compliment to one another, you know? And so, uh, they had a really good program with the rock and roll express. And that was, you know, just, oh, and the promos were so good. And then of course, uh, you know, when they first would come out and they'd have like Devon with them. And, uh, and for a while Devon was the guy that would like always take the fall, you know, he was like the Buddy Roberts of, uh, of the, of the, um, of the group, and and then they had other guys that were coming out. It was like here, here you can imagine in a small town in the south, okay, and this group of black guys comes out there like there's some kind of gangbangers or something like that. Uh, to say that might have been a cultural shock, <laughs> I think is uh,
1: maybe not going out on a huge limb there, Bear. No, and that's, you know, and it, Jim Cornette too, I think this is, uh, the genius of what he was doing is that he really understood the people who were buying tickets and his audience. And that, that, that to me, you know, it's a shame that I, mean, I remember getting the phone call. I remember the, the phone call when uh, smoky mountain folded up and I was shocked, you know, I was like, how could smoky mountain fold up? Uh, because Cornette really understood uh, the mentality and, and what, what his people wanted to see the ticket buyers. Obviously there were you know financial issues which would have caused that. But but it what New Jack was doing and, and Mustafa and that was the other beauty, as you just said, Mustafa Said didn't have to say anything. He would just make those faces. But my God, did this work? This was really something that that truly worked. Uh, but it wasn't the same as we also talked about by the time he got to ECW, it became just a gimmick and he was just basically hardcore violence at that point and that's that's not something that i've ever you know i i think after watching onita and fmw where i i found that interesting uh you know once everybody started doing the hardcore violence and this week there's been a lot of uh discussion about the nick gage episode of uh dark side of the ring i believe and a lot of people extremely critical about that uh that holds no interest to me and it's not like i'm going to sit here and knock it more power to you if that's what you like. But for me, it's just not something I'm into.
0: You know, somebody on our Facebook page was talking about that particular episode, the Nick Gage episode. And they said, you know,
1: you know who that was, don't you? Well,
0: well, well who was it? That was John Lee. Do you know where he's from, right? Uh, he,
1: Wells! Uh,
0: but he was the one that said, uh, I watched like literally, what, 30 seconds of this and I turned it off. Yep. Uh, you know, and sometimes you got to read the room. And uh, apparently they misread the room on that one. But, you know, what I was saying to Barry was, uh, and and- Barry, you were 100% right on what you just said. Check. Thank you. Uh, I did not enjoy his run in ECW nearly as much as Smoky Mountain. And I think maybe it was a desensitization to his act and his routine. Yep. Uh, I think what he was doing uh, in Smoky Mountain that would be shocking and like would just uh, amaze the people that were there and the culture that he was doing it in. It didn't mean as much to people in Philadelphia. People in Philadelphia turned this into a baby face act. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. And then that's, that's Philly, you know? Yep. And, uh, you know, and so I, I think it, they, although the ECW maniacs would be like, Oh yeah, he was fucking awesome. I read the time he jumped off a balcony onto, I don't know whoever the hell it was. And, but it was just like, you know, the other interesting thing I read, I, I think, uh, it was a friend of the show, Howard Brody that posted that, uh. New Jack sort of made this Faustian bargain, which by the way, Bear, it's the first time. We wow. Remember. Faustian bargain. That yeah. what he was doing was essentially uh, to get himself over and to stay over. He was shortening his own life. Sure. And you know, unfortunately that came true, but he accepted the fact that in order to defeat his family, to take care of his family, that's what he was doing and he accepted it. And so, you know, uh, I mean, you have to appreciate the fact that the guy understood that. And uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of guys of this generation of wrestling that have made that bargain and, you know, they kind of live with the consequences of it. So, uh, yeah, so I did not enjoy his run at ECW. I, I will say the uh, I remember. Wow. You remember those those when they would sell the um, the the tapes of the DVD uh, DVDs of the ECW shows? Uh, and they would, anyhow, they do like the, uh, the November rain oh, one. Yeah. Heyman was a genius. Oh, he that, was absolutely. fantastic when yeah. they did the one for gangsters, para gangsta, excuse me, gangsta's paradise. It yep. was fantastic. I was like, oh, well, holy shit. I have to get this thing just cause it looks so fucking awesome. And so, yeah, so that was great stuff. But I think in, uh, in totality, I think his smoky mountain stuff was far more memorable and so, anyway, so we, uh, Barry, as we are wont to do, we will raise an adult beverage to the memory of Jerome Young, a new Jack, uh, and uh, his legacy in the world of professional wrestling. So, now, Barry, let's go to we have a new segment. New segment alert. So, I talked to our very own Barry Rose as I'm driving down the road the other day, just popped into my head. I said, you know, different people have different segments. And uh, I'm going to be completely candid. I listen to other podcasts. And one of the podcasts I listen to, because I'm a Cubs fan, I listen to a, a Cubs podcast, and they do this thing called This Date in Cubs History. And they go back and, you know, you can go back five years, and go back, you know, 40 years and talk about what happened in Cubs history that day. So I said, this is something that we should do, but not just for wrestling history, because Barry is Mr. CWF. That is his specialty. Of course, he can talk about other things uh, like we do on this podcast, but- since he is so articulate and so... But I've never heard you described as articulate, Barry. What the no, hell? No, me neither. Think? Yeah, never. Yeah. So anyway, as Ozzy's farting there in the background, probably, <laughs> I'm sure. Tell us what happened this day, May 18th, in CWF wrestling history.
1: Absolutely. And this is a segment, too, that we do every night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the Championship Wrestling from Florida Archives Facebook group. We do a pick-a-card thread where essentially we'll list something like... You know, up to 30 or 40 different cards that would have taken place on, say, May the 18th, sometimes going back to the 30s up until the mid 80s. So it's exciting. And a lot of the brothership is in there uh, and joining. So I did pull it up. So we do. We have a couple of title changes happening this day. The Monroe brothers, Sputnik and Rocket regained the world tag team titles from. How's this for a team? Jose Lothario and Wahoo McDaniel. This Mm. took place 1967 in the beautiful city of Jacksonville. As we have stated before, Jeff, Jacksonville, also the largest drawing uh, city on a weekly basis. Memorial uh, Coliseum, correct? It was the Jacksonville Memorial Coliseum at that point. As we like to refer to it, the house that Don Curtis built. Uh, This was a solid card, though. A couple other matches on this card caught my eye. Eddie Graham fought the great Malenko, uh, Eddie Graham defeating great Malenko by DQ. This was a feud that lasted somewhere nine years off and on. They would start it. They would stop it. Malenko would go to Texas. Malenko would come back, whatever it was, but this feud, they first wrestled each other. Uh, late 62 and here it is 67. They're still feuding. They were still having matches in 1970. So it's incredible hero. Matsuda drew Sam steamboat and, uh, a very young Terry funk and Terry funk, uh, defeating wild bill Dromo. Terry funk actually made his CWF debut that same year. So, uh, very interesting to see. And then Jeff, another, uh title change kendall windham i know a personal favorite of yours no totally (laughs) kendall windham winning the florida title in a one-night tournament on the 1986 miami card i was there that night uh i don't remember much this was a very you paid good money to go to. i I think my father paid good money for us to go that night it was a uh It was a a fairly that was an ugly period right there for CWF, Uh, but we've got some other really solid matches. Jack Briscoe uh, wrestling Terry Funk in a Texas death match 1971 in Tampa. Also on that card, Dick Murdoch defeating Jerry Briscoe. Uh, Here's a card that caught my eye. 1964 in Orlando. Main event was Cowboy Bob Ellis defeating Bob Orton Sr. by count. Cowboy Bob Ellis was a really big deal in the 1960s. And it's it's almost hard because it, at this stage, Cowboy Bob Ellis is really all but forgotten. Apparently, still alive, Jeff. Uh
0: yeah, amazing. You know, his the that, that was the card was almost fifty years ago and the guy's still with us. God
1: bless still with us and apparently uh is supposedly in his nineties. Uh, in his nineties, he's 90, you know, I don't know, early nineties, mid nineties could last I heard could have passed away and maybe it went off the radar and we don't know it, but, uh, that was, but check out this match underneath you you had two of the, of this era, you had two of the top tag teams in, uh, John and Chris Tolos wrestling Duke, Kimoka and Hiro Matsuda. Uh, that to me was just, I mean, and I love the fact too, because this is a, an all heel tag team match right here, which in those days, a little rare, not something you saw that often, uh, you know, these days too, with professional wrestling, as you know, and everybody listening knows there's a lot of tweeners. There's always not this black and white cut and dry, good guy and bad guy, but back in, you know, in the sixties and seventies, absolutely. It really was black and white. Uh, so here you have two heel teams facing each other, which I find interesting. Uh, Mister Florida, our old friend, the late Paul Jones, working with the Super Destroyer, 1980 in Orlando. This was a great feud, Jeff. You remember this angle between? Oh them?
0: yeah, yeah, the, the cigar in the eye thing.
1: That was a big fucking deal back yeah. then too. So Super uh, Destroyer, uh, Scott Irwin. Scott, the great Scott Irwin, never truly ever got his due. I think in professional wrestling died. I want to say it was eighty-seven when he passed away. But uh, it, a lot of people knew him as one half of the Long Riders. As and
0: if I'm not mistaken, Barry. Excuse me for interrupting. Uh, sure. Like, uh, unlike a lot of guys that may have been uh, directly or indirectly related to, uh, you know, uh, substance abuse or something like that. I believe Scott Irwin my have passed away of cancer. Am I correct? He passed away of
1: brain cancer. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, so that he was heart that's heart very tragic.
1: Yeah, so that that's especially the young age too, because I want to say 37, 38 years yeah. old. I mean, he was a young guy, uh, big guy, guy, and a hell of a fucking worker too. Hell of a work. I think a lot of people say, uh, you know, he was the guy that kind of popularized the uh, the superplex. I believe Bob yeah. Orton Jr. might have done it first, but he was the guy that kind of popularized it, and he had that really fantastic tag team with the the mass superstar in yep. Georgia. Yep on TBS. Uh another match Dusty Rhodes and Ernie Ladd working with Ivan Koloff and Buddy Wolf on the 77 Miami Beach card. What makes that interesting is uh this was the period where Dusty Rhodes and Ernie Ladd had formed the Superpowers and this was uh two- Was that actually what they called them? They did. It was the Superpowers. oh
0: ah, it- okay.
1: Oh yeah, and this was uh this was a tag team where you had the number one and number two babyface in the state joining forces to rid the state of evil. As we all know, this was one of the most brilliant setups of all time because these two were having problems. Uh, and I actually I should quantify that. Ernie Ladd was having problems with Dusty Rhodes and Dusty Rhodes literally was like the three monkeys with hear no evil, see no evil, <laughs> Dusty couldn't tell. Everybody else and their mother saw that that Ernie Ladd was upset about, uh, about Dusty's behavior, but no, but Dusty didn't see it. But in just a few weeks, uh, and I wanna say it was maybe two or three weeks later, uh, he would actually turn on him. Ernie would turn on Dusty Rhodes which was probably, in my opinion, the greatest heel turn that I ever saw. Sorry about that, Barry Wyndham, Dusty Road, Stephen Javorski, but this one really wrecks <laughs> up there Just with the way uh, to there? I'll put the boots to that Pittsburgh SOB no matter what. Uh, you don't uh, know so, your
0: Pittsburgh restaurants, Barry. Yes.
1: I, well, yeah. Actually, I don't know him as well as he does. I'll give him that on that one. Uh, some other matches taking place, and I really like this one 1974 St. Pete. And St. Pete was always the uh, the Madison Square Garden of the state of Florida. It was once a month. Uh, it would draw the biggest house for a monthly show. Jacksonville, as I just said, the biggest on a weekly. But the, the St. Pete show was a big show. This is headline Jack Briscoe defending the world title against Harley Race. Uh, yeah, that might have been a pretty good match. Yeah, it might have been decent. How about this North American tag team, now North American title match? Uh, Buddy Colt working with Cowboy Bill Watts. Yeah, that might have been pretty good, too. Yeah, two guys that had actually traded that title. Then you had a tag team match. How about this? Andre the Giant. And Andre the Giant in 1974, yeah. way different than Andre the Giant in 1984. This guy was unbelievable. Teaming with Don Morocco who was already a stud at this point, they wrestled the Samoan and Bobby Duncan. Now, that's not a powerhouse combo. However, they were subbing... For Dusty Rhodes and Pac Song, who had split up just a couple of days earlier. I did see you uh, note that in the uh, CWF group, that this is just a mere few days after the big Dusty Rhodes turn. It is. And, uh, and then this tag team match, which I really like, uh, Eddie and Mike Graham working with the Hollywood Blondes. And Hollywood Blondes are another one, too. Kind of lost to uh, the current generation because their last match as a team was probably 76 or 77. Uh, and then they were done. Buddy Jack, obviously, Buddy Jack became one of the free birds, and that's where most people know him from. Jerry Brown kind of disappeared for years. There's some stories. I believe he's passed within the last couple of years. Uh, but Jerry Brown was a, uh, a really solid worker that just never got his due uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, I've got a couple of matches here that I just think are spectacular. 1976 Tampa. And this is going to wrap it up for us, Jeff. Lights out match, tape fist, three-minute rounds on a $20,000 bounty. Holy. You can't put a bounty on a man's head! And you know if I'm talking bounty, who's going to be in that main event, don't you, Jeff? Uh, American Dream? There you go. American Dream versus Missouri Mauler. However, that's not— There may the- have been some blood in that match. Maybe. There, so I think the key to that is how quickly was the blood spilled? Did we see blood in the first three minute rounds? I'm pretty sure that we did, but check out these other matches. And these are the matches that really catch my eye. Uh, Bob Orton senior and junior Bob Orton senior is another guy lost on the current generation. If you've ever seen him, he was out of this world. They worked with Dick Slater and Bob Armstrong. I would have loved to have seen that match. Okay. The next two matches, uh, blow me away. Billy Robinson working with Pac song. But then this match is, is bizarre to me. Jack Briscoe working with Jeff ports and Jeff ports. I will say maybe the most underrated professional wrestler I have ever seen. This guy, there was, he was unfucking fucking believable. Je- the father of Scott McGee, unbelievable, could do it all for whatever reason. Didn't have a lot of charisma. Uh, was balding at a young age and just never got a push, except for, I think, Calgary. Calgary, I think he was North American champion for them. Everywhere else he was working prelims. This guy had more talent than probably 90% of other wrestlers on cards. Uh, another couple of matches I like on this one, The Assassin, big fan of The Assassin, working with Steve Kern. And then a young Ricky Steamboat defeating The Gladiator. And The Gladiator was a guy named Dick Steinborn. Dick Steinborn, slightly controversial in some circles, but a guy that passed away within the last year. So this was always interesting to me, and this is a little backstory, and then we can move on. But Dick Steinborn was a big deal in CWF in the 1960s, and I would say 1970. And uh, his father, Milo Steinborn, who promoted Orlando up until 1977, uh, and had promoted Orlando and Cocoa Beach for... 20 or 25 years. These were guys who were ingrained in CWF and, uh, Dick Steinborn, uh, it, when the split occurred in Georgia, he wound up going with Gunkel and he never worked Florida again as Dick Steinborn, but they brought him in for maybe three or four weeks as the gladiator underneath the hood doing mostly jobs. As you can see, he did a job here to Ricky steamboat And Ricky Steamboat at this point had been a year or two in the business max.
0: Uh, But that wasn't that wasn't some sort of like uh, many years after shot at Ricky Hunter, was it?
1: No, I don't think so. I I think and the reason I would say I would say so there was a shot at Ricky Hunter. Yes, they brought right after Ricky Hunter left, they brought in the super gladiator, who was Danny Miller. That was a direct shot, but you're not taking a shot at a guy seven years later. One other—that's
0: no, what I was saying. That's you know, seems yeah, like a it would
1: ridiculous. that would make no sense. One other match to uh, to throw out there would be, uh, and actually, I should throw. Yeah, I'll throw out this one other match. Uh, NWA World's Title, 1984, Lake City. Jeff, I have no idea where Lake City is. Kerry Von Erich defeats Superstar Billy Graham. Now, now let me say, whenever I post that Kerry Von Erich and superstar Billy Graham worked together. People always chime in and said, I would give anything to see that match. Let me tell you, it was uh, horrible. It would have been, it was horrible. <laughs> you would not have wanted to see superstar Billy Graham by 80. I mean, let, let's be honest. Superstar Billy Graham was never a great worker, but he had a lot going for him by 84. That had changed. And Kerry, uh, you know, right. Kerry wasn't, yeah, this was not
0: 1975. Somebody. Billy yes. Graham. Yeah. Uh, and versus, Kerry, versus, yeah.
1: Terry had to be in the ring with somebody better than him to have a really good match, you know. This wasn't uh, So this was I believe they they did wrestle in Miami Beach which I saw and I got to tell you it was absolutely brutal. Absolutely. You know, I I just I there's a
0: lot of things about the way that CWF and one person in particular, uh <clears throat> the Dream, handled the whole Kerry Von Erich coming down as the new world champion into Florida. Now, I understand Uh, And back in those days, the presumption may have been that not everybody was familiar with with Kerry Von Erich. But, you know, his brother had been in there as this like mega heel, like a year and a half before. And so now you have this new world champion who has been all over the magazines the last year and a half. And so if you presume that your public buys the magazine, even like a third of your ticket buying public buys the magazines, they fucking know who Kerry Von Erich is. So you've got the world, the new world champion coming in and you're putting him in Lake City. Like, really? What the fuck? Like, why don't you put the kid in St. Pete or in Orlando or Miami, the bigger cities to put over the fact that here's our new world champion, this young, charismatic guy that the girls in Texas go apeshit for. But instead, you're putting him in Lake City with a guy that's five years past his prime. Uh, It makes no fucking sense whatsoever, Barry.
1: Yeah, and five years is being generous. Uh, oh, I'm a kind guy. The, yeah, that's I, I would agree. It makes no sense. But you look, and I want to say Kerry had like 10 or 11 matches in the state of Florida. So he really, I know that he worked Florida. I believe he worked Texas, uh, which uh, he did work Texas. He may have had a shot or two in Georgia and Japan, but... It's almost like they brought Kerry down to Florida with the title to kind of hide him for some reason. Like we'll just stick him in Florida, and then we'll put him in these little shitty towns. Really, kind to of like surprising they
0: did—they didn't put him in St. Louis for a title defense because he was yeah. real over in, in St. Louis. So, and maybe he
1: did. I don't—I'm not aware, but yeah, yeah, it is. It's bizarre, uh, and I can't figure. But what that—what that says to me, my assumption—I have no idea this to be fact. This was the confidence they had in Kerry that yeah. they were just going to hide him in Lake city. Let's be honest. I mean, no, he no. Might and, and Harry, but he was limited to be fair. If Kerry
0: arrived to the arena in less than 100% shape, there ah, you go. Then that could be a problem that only somebody like flair could take care of as opposed to, uh, the legendary superstar, Billy Graham. But you know, it's there, there are two sides of the equation, but it sure seemed like this was a, a way of you're very, uh, uh, a student that comment uh, hiding the new world champion. And uh, needless to say, there were other times when, you know, you have the world champion, the new world champions coming into town, but we're going to put them like uh, a second or third from the top. That, that to me is, you know, that's, that's not the way the the world title uh, should be represented. You need to make a little bit more of a big deal about it. And it seemed like they kind of poo-pooed it. And maybe they knew that, Oh, this kid's going to be the world champion for three or four weeks. So why do we want to invest any uh, promotional capital into him? But uh, anyway, that's a, another story for another time. Okay, Barry, it is time to get to our match of the week. So here's the story. On YouTube, if you type in this match, it's going to show January 7th, 1990. In fact, the bout took place at a TV taping on December 15th, 1989 in Peoria, that hotbed of wrestling, Peoria. Uh, Peoria, Illinois. Okay. And so here's what happened As I did a little, little research and uh, backstory on this. So apparently, about a month before, there had been a match with Ric Flair and Bobby Eaton. Okay, and uh, it was the story was that Ric Flair had always wanted to work with Bobby Eaton. There's not a big surprise because Bobby Eaton's one of the great generational talents. Okay, as is Flair. But apparently, what happened was they ended up doing like a DQ finish or a count out of the ring finish. At which point, legendary WCW wrestling mind Jim Hurd said. What the fuck kind of world champion do we have if he can't even beat Bobby Eaton? That's a quote from Jim Cornette's uh, scrapbook. There, so they decided that they wanted to put Flair back in the ring with Bobby Eaton and basically give Ric Flair a clean pin over Bobby Eaton. Now, that's not necessarily something Ric Flair said he wanted to have. This is promotional genius, Jim heard. Now you can kind of understand why Jim Cornette hated the guy so much that he would shit on Bobby Eaton that way. But anyway, so they booked this rematch. That wasn't going to be shown on TV until uh, after the beginning of the new year. So there we are in Peoria, Barry. What do we have better to do on a December night than go watch Bobby Eaton and Ric Flair? Tell the folks what you thought of this match. Yeah, so
1: this what what I I'm glad that you basically set the record straight that this match took place in 89 because there is a focus here of Bobby Eaton working over the neck of Ric Flair and now it all makes perfect sense because, uh, if flair had had the angle with Terry funk a yeah. little earlier this year, right? So six, six to seven months before this. Yeah. So that, that makes, because there is a period there where he's really working over the neck. And I'm like thinking, why in 91 is he working over the neck? Now it makes a lot of sense. That was a this lingering a, injury. It was a lingering injury. This is a really good match. And it, what, what I took from this match, a, I, let, let me, let me give both sides of it based off of, I, I guess I, I guess I'm a smart fan, right, Jeff? I guess that's the, the smart mark. Would I that believe, be the official? I believe you're, you're, you're a knowledgeable on the business, Barry. All right. I, it, there's no way I see Bobby Eaton as going to become the NWA world's heavyweight champion. Like that, that would be a hard sell for me to see, you know, I just don't see that. I I wouldn't see, and that's not based off of talent because he's equally as talented as Flair. The guy's unbelievable. I just, you know, in the scope of things, I don't see it. That being said, he may have been one of Flair's best opponents because these two, the way they work together was, this is, this is the way opponents should be married together. Like, it was incredible. Eaton's Bump's. And Bobby Eaton is known for taking great bumps, right? He went the extra distance working with Flair here, and you can see it. He takes a backdrop. What's he, 40 feet in the air, Jeff? Uh,
0: on the, the one on the cement? Oh, my yes. God, that was scary. Ce- yeah. But
1: even the one in the ring, there's one in the yeah. ring. With the one on the cement is scary, but the there's one in the ring. And, and then he, he, he takes that shoulder bump from Flair, and he sells it like, you know, like a fucking uh, tank just hit him. Like, he's just so good. They just worked. This literally, the way that they were working together is almost indescribable. It was just perfect on every level. Bobby Eaton's punches too, and that's another thing too. And I'll give Ric Flair a lot of credit. Bobby Eaton's throwing some of the best punches of his career in this match, and Ric Flair sells everyone like fucking Mike Tyson's in the ring. You know, it's just, it's just absolutely incredible. Uh, This is the thing. When you watch a guy like Bobby Eaton in a tag match and, you know, whether it was Dennis Con, going back, George Goulis, for Christ's fucking sake, whether it was, you know, Bobby Eaton with Stan Lane or Bobby Eaton, Dennis Condry or Bobby Eaton, whoever he was with, he was with a lot of different partners, Sweet Brown Sugar, uh, Coco Beware, Stagger Lee and all this stuff. Bobby Eaton's whole career was based off a of tag team wrestling. And it does take a different mentality to actually do that. But yet here, Bobby Eaton steps into a singles match like he's had, you know, 40,000 singles matches. That, to me, is the sign of a great professional wrestler. And I I honestly think I I, I know that there is a great backstory, which I read, which you're going to tell the the listeners momentarily. But somebody really made a mistake. And it's kind of what they did with Ricky Morton and Ric Flair there was a period there where you almost believed Ricky Morton had a shot because of the push he was getting here. It appears like this is an afterthought. Like we're going to put Bobby Eaton in. He's going to have a match. That's maybe, you know, one of the best matches we've ever had on main event or on television. That wasn't a pay-per-view, but at the same time, it's almost like, like it's filler, but not based off of the work ring, just based off the way it's being presented. Would you agree with that or no? Uh, no, no, absolutely. So I, I'm
0: going to reference uh, the Jim Cornette, Midnight Express scrapbook, which, you know, if you don't have this book, yes, I, I don't know how many copies that there are out there. But uh, if you're any kind of uh, wrestling fan, Jim Cornette fan, Midnight Express fan, you owe it to yourself to, to get your hands on this book. So uh, in Jim's book, we're going to November 20th, Columbus, Ohio TV, Ric Flair over Bobby Eaton, uh, DQ. After 14 years as a pro, Bobby Eaton got his first NWA World Heavyweight Championship match on TBS main event telecast. Flair had never worked a single match against Eaton and specifically wanted to do so on TV, so the match was booked. Not feeling he should beat Bobby right after the Midnight Express's heel turn, he did a DQ finish after a great 20-minute match with Jim Cornette interfering. Jim Heard went ballistic that the world champion, quote, couldn't even beat Bobby Eaton, unquote. The match, when it aired on 12 did a 3.3 rating, a 5.6 share, and was seen in 1.7 million homes, the best Sunday TBS rating in over a year. So then you jump forward to December 14th in Peoria. Uh, ever since the first Eaton-Flair world title match, Heard hadn't let up on how Flair hadn't won cleanly, so Flair insisted on booking a return where they had another great match Ending in a finish, Jim Cornette devised where Flair survived a lane run-in, threw Stan out of the ring, knocked Jim Cornette out with his own tennis racket, and pinned Bobby Clean in the middle of the ring. Let the bastard bitch about that, was Jim Cornette's remark as Flair stood triumphantly (laughs) over all three of the Midnight Express. Heard still wasn't happy about it, even when the ratings came in and the show did a 3.2 rating, a 5.0 share, And Uh, 1.6.5 million homes on January 7th, the highest-rated Sunday main event on TBS since, well, you guessed it, the first Flair at Eaton match. So, um, yeah, obviously, it's just been reinforced yet again. What a fucking moron to the wrestling business that Jim Hurd was. Now, when I watched this match, uh, I I was actually talking to Barry briefly, and I said, you know, I said, the thing that kind of got me was this was a fantastic match, but the ending... I didn't care for it too much because all of a sudden Ric Flair, who let's remember was still a babyface at this time, goes over against uh, this three-man crew that has been like your world champions for the better part of what, like four or five years? Yeah. And so it completely destroys the Minute Express to lose. I mean, you know, of course Ric Flair was billed as the world champion, but he was he was a world champion and like never won. You know, he was always, because he was a heel, he was always losing Uh, you know, by DQ or he's winning with the help of the horsemen or something like that. So now all of a sudden they want to make Ric Flair into Hulk Hogan and have him destroy three guys who, by the way, according to also to the scrapbook, Jim Hurd did not want to have the Midnight Express in the tag team tournament at uh, Starrcade 89, which included the Steiners, uh, Doom, the Samoan SWAT team and the Road Warriors, because he didn't feel they they were up to those teams levels. Uh, So uh, I'll let you percolate on that just a little bit. Sorry. Yeah. A fantastic match, but I didn't, I didn't care for the ending
1: too much. But now, upon reading that, I understand why they did it that way, Barry. I didn't hate the ending, and I, I it was a, it was almost a predictable type of ending in a lot of ways. There was definitely nothing original about it. And this match is going to be, you know, whatever legacy this match has is based off of the work. But let me ask you a question: You called Jim Hurd a moron. When you hire a guy that has zero wrestling experience, that's been running pizza huts for years, and you hire him and you let him have input on a product he has no idea about, who's the moron, Jim Hurd or the guy that hired him?
0: Well, corporate America, of course, is well known for their uh, you know, yeah. their,
1: their spot Jim Herd on was-
0: decision making. But the reason Jim Hurd was hired was because he was I believe either the station manager or the program program director. I think it was like KPLR in St. Louis, where much right. Nick was the promoter. Uh, Larry Matizek was doing all the legwork, and you know, in hindsight, Larry Matizek was the guy that should have gotten the job if that's the direction they wanted to go. But for some reason, they thought Jim Hurd, uh, who had been in corporate America, you know, as like a, a, some sort of regional manager for Pizza Hut or something like that, right. and and so the, he gets the job. Uh, I don't know if it was because Larry Madazek wanted to do certain things, and the corporation said no, we don't want to do that. But they literally, uh, it would be like handing. Uh, I can't even. I can't even contemplate what it would be like because it was such a bizarre decision. You it know, was. it was. You know, <laughs> it makes sense. And uh, a guy. It's not that he had been a promoter that wasn't very good. You know, I, they would have been better off hiring like somebody like uh, Bill Mercer. From world class to other things, <laughs> you know, I'm saying <laughs> somebody at least, that was associated in some respect, <laughs> right. you know, with wrestling. This guy was not involved at all, and they okay. handed him a job for a multi million dollar corporation. Yeah. So you can imagine why people like Cornette and Flair and and other people in the booking office, Kevin Sullivan, were frustrated by this guy's inability to see the forest for the trees. This is like somebody that that wanted to he wanted to have a, a humpback uh, a tag team. So that they couldn't be pinned. That was gonna be their gimmicks, you know. <laughs> I mean, he wanted to cut Ric Flair's hair and shade, he wanted to change Ric Flair's ring name to Spartacus to tie yeah. it in with the movie because Turner Classic Movies owned the rights to the Kirk Douglas movie Spartacus, which by the way is a fantastic movie. I don't know what the fuck that has to do with Ric Flair, though. <laughs> no, it has nothing to do with it, right? <laughs> of course not. So, yes, Jim Hurd, promotional genius, uh, you know, but what once again, we will post a link to this match. Yeah. The match is great. And and both guys are in, in form, you know, great form. It, it's it was uh, it, it brings you back seeing Flair as a babyface in WCW. It's like we didn't get enough, we didn't get enough of that because yeah. Flair wanted to be a heel. He was far more comfortable in that role. But like you know, the opening to the match when you see Flair walking through the crowd and he's kind of like, hey, how you doing? Hey, hey. he's like kind of like faux slapping hands and he's pointing to the guy and the guy, like he walks past this one girl, he points at her, Hey, how you doing? And yeah. then he like, and he points to some guy and wants the camera guy to point to the guy in the crowd that's cheering for him. And just seeing that flare
1: is like so different from what we're used to seeing. So that was always, kind of fun. Jeff, I always go back to, to the McDonald's reference on this one. If McDonald's puts out a product like McDonald's at one point sold pizza, McDonald's at one point had hot dogs. Now, If you remember that, that's because you and I are basically the same age demographic, but a lot of younger people don't. And why did they stop? Because people fucking hated it. Because people didn't buy it. So what does that say? It says that McDonald's was listening to the people that come to their restaurants to buy their products. So at the same time, if something, somebody like, how do you hire a guy who knows nothing when it comes to wrestling? You don't. Maybe he, he had a good interview. I don't know. He he right. There <laughs> you go. He knocked Dick that interview King? out of the parks. So <laughs> right. are going to give
0: him a multi-million dollar
1: job. Yeah. Show leg. That's what it was. Yeah. So yes. Anyway. Oh, Barry. A little surprise yeah. for you, Barry. I saw you don't t- you know what time it is? I do know what time it is. Yes,
0: it's time for old friends. F, Mary or kicked to the curb. So, Barry, we're doing Maxim Magazine's Women of 2011. Yes, we're in this century. I know people are happy about that. So, Barry, here are my three uh, ladies that I've sent you. We have uh, Anne Hathaway. Bit of a revealing dress there, I think. Oh, really? my God. Fantastic. Yes? Uh, yeah. Catwoman. So uh, then we. the second one is... Rosie Huntington, and she's got some sort of hyphen last name. Our friend John Lee from Wales! Thank you. Would know. But uh, Rosie Huntington, uh, the girlfriend, long time, of the state. Jason Statham. Ah, Saw Wrath of Man the other night, Barry. Big thumbs up on that one. It's a new okay. movie out in the theater. And then, of course, we have Katy Perry, uh, American Idol host. Uh, so, Barry, you got Anne Hathaway, Rosie Huntington,
1: and Katy Perry, where are you going on this trip? Sure. So let me, add, so th- this is something too. Am I basing it off of these, yes, photos? these
0: photos? Yes, these
1: photos. Okay. Well, it, regardless, I'm going to kill Katy Perry right off the bat. Okay. It doesn't, I am not a fan. I, uh, I've been watching American Idol this year. Jeff, have you, are you still watching? I know you were in the beginning. I have missed the last couple episodes. All right. A lot of controversy
0: this year. Yeah. Of- the kid, the kid uh, recently got kicked off. Yeah. Or some uh, rather unfortunate... And here, let me just just say this, Barry. I I wasn't going to go there, but I'm going to go there. The kid is 16 years old. He apparently posted some rather uh, uh, not good pictures. But it was apparently pictures that he posted when he was 12 years old. Right. Okay? So I want all of you out there listening who think that what the kid did was fucking idiotic. Okay? And it was definitely wrong. You know, if you know, the mom has a completely different version yeah. of what it was that was posted, but okay, let's just say for the sake of the argument that what the kid posted was what they said it was. Okay. Which they said it was a picture of him in a clan outfit. Okay. He was 12 fucking years old. And I really think at some point in society today, you know, with, with these people that go back years and years and years on your Twitter feed or your Facebook or Instagram, that's why I always tell my kids you got to watch what you put to put on these things because hey, the point I used to always make to my kids were, you know, what happens if you go and you submit an application somewhere and they go and start scrolling back through your Facebook, you know, and they go back five, six, seven years and, oh, here's a picture of you, uh, you know, doing, you know, being out, having fun with your friends and you're drunk and you're puking on your shoes and it was funny at the time. But now some prospective employer, like in this case, American Idol is looking at this and they say, "What the fuck is this?" Uh, you know, well, I'm not going to hire this person. They posted these idiotic photos. These things will always come back and bite you in the ass. Now, let me say, if that's what the kid posted, it was wrong. But come
1: on, he was 12 years old. Barry, does the he kid not get? He was 12, and, yeah. and I think it. I think, in my opinion, and first off, too, it's it's like we're holding this kid accountable for what he did when he was 12. And uh, I, how culpable are his, are his parents? Because That's I terrible. would have, yeah, exactly. I'd have to assume at 12, his parents might've had, maybe not, but they may have had some sort of idea that he was doing. And I don't buy the mother's excuse. It was a very flimsy, yeah. uh, excuse, but I feel for the kid. And I'm going to tell you why, uh, like him or don't like it was, a. a I haven't seen the photo, but from the description, terrible photo, he was 12. He's done. He's 16 yeah. years old. It's and the kid, had, the kid had amazing voice. He would he uh, I don't know if he would have won, yeah. but that wasn't he was based in the top off five. Of, he was, but it wasn't based off of his talent. It was based off of I don't I don't know if he was going to connect enough with the audience. He could have won. I don't. What do I know? But uh, but he is now 16 years old and for a really stupid action from his when he was 12 years old, he is done. I mean, he, he's going to wind up playing like local bars now at this point. Yeah. And that won't even happen for if He's going to have to go underground and lay low and shit. I hold his parents accountable because when yeah. you're 12 years old, your parents are responsible. And look, we all do stupid shit. Boy, did I do stupid shit when I was 12? Did I do stupid shit last week? I, I still fucking do it. So I, uh, I, I, I feel for him in the sense that I don't know if he's even grasped it, that his career is over. And, you know, you're again, when you're 16, maybe he realizes it or not. This kid was going to be a millionaire. This kid was going to be, you know, arguably living in Beverly Hills and with women and living a life of, you know, excess and luxury and yeah. fun. And, you know, he's going to be fucking, uh, you know, I, I think in, in a
0: worst worst case scenario, the way that, uh, one of the hosts, Luke Bryan, uh, gave this kid credit and, 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 pl- uh, applauded his performances. The very worst this kid could have been opening up for Luke Bryan in his next yeah. concert tour, you know, which well, would have
1: got you, if you saw the early episodes. He liked this other country kid who didn't make it. And he got that kid, a slot in the grand old Opry. Yeah, so, that's yeah. right. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so, so now so I'm not a Katy Perry fan. Uh, I okay, got you. She's gotten a little better as the, as the show has progressed, but, uh, I would, uh, she gets killed right off the bat. I am going to F, uh, the Welsh young lady with the hyphenated name only because this photo of Anne Hathaway literally is like the poster, uh, girl of exactly what I would be looking for.
2: Yeah. That's
0: She's probably the best a, photo I've ever seen team. of Anne Hathaway. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Even when she wore the Selena Kyle rubber suit. <laughs> All right. She, I mean, yes,
1: the, I, I, didn't know that she had those breasts. First yeah. off, they look spectacular. But she, I mean, she is model beauty. And I'm talking to the 10th degree. She just looks absolutely stunning. And again, I want to go off the philosophy that if I marry you, then I can F all the time, which you've said, is that how that works?
0: Uh, I know that isn't how it
1: works, but in my mind right now, that's how it's working. So yes, it's, uh, it's Mary Ann Hathaway F the Welsh lady with the name Rosie uh, Huntington. Rosie Huntington state them something and Katy Perry more power to you. I just don't like you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I have no problem with that. Uh,
0: I, I might've, uh, the only thing I might've, I might've given the old, uh, F to Katie. Cause, uh, she's, uh, she's pretty hot uh, with the dark hair or the blonde hair. I gotta, I gotta admit that. And I will say, She's certainly less crazy than uh, Paula Abdul. Uh, well, I'll, I'll give her give credit. So I'll give her like credit. That's right. nine percent of the population. <laughs> yeah, right. Talk about baby uh, with damp praise there. Uh, so.
1: I'll tell you what I thought was funny. So I, I haven't watched American Idol in a few years, and my daughter wanted to watch it this year. And I got into it, and I loved it. And they had they had her on. And, and uh, I think it was Luke had somebody with COVID or somebody. Yes, I forget what it right was. Yeah. And, and Paula Abdul came back. And yeah. Paula came back. She was she, she was giving her reviews and talking and still making no sense and talking in circles some 15 years, 20 years later. Like it was like, like, like time had just stopped for her. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: actually, you know, uh, I, man, I can't remember what the guy's name is now. The heavyset black guy. Oh, he, Willie, he's, yeah. Willie, he's got an amazing, amazing voice. Yeah. His, uh, I used to actually sit directly across at the courthouse from, I think it's his aunt because oh, wow. went when the kid was first going up on the, at the beginning of the season, she said, Oh, everybody watch out for my, uh, my nephew, Willie. He said, so yeah, that's, that's kind of amazing that, uh, yeah, uh, 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 I don't know if that's really a brush with greatness or not though. Like I said across from his, aunt. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> it, it, I it, claim to
2: fame. <laughs>
0: it counts. You got to take, yeah. it. take it for what it's worth. Yeah. Absolutely. Right, so I tell you what, Barry, at this point, why don't we go to part two of our interview with wrestling legend Sean Waltman, wrestling legend slash fan of wrestling. Those are the best kind, Barry. So why don't we go to our part two of our interview with Sean Waltman.
1: So Sean, we, uh, one of the things we were going to talk to you about, we decided, and, and as you did, we didn't want to talk about your career because you've talked about it a million different places
2: talk a little bit about it. If you have some stuff, stuff that kind of,
1: you know, I mean, we we're going to go in a different
2: direction and we're
1: going to talk about Sean Waltman, the guy, the man. So huh? one of the things we do on our, on our podcast, uh, is every week. We we break Fabe, not just on professional wrestling we break Cabe on Cabe. we break cfb so I'm shortening it
0: <laughs> shortening it it's- food television sports pop culture music uh, you fucking name it week week. Sure be happy to hear that. what's that I'm sure Cabe will be happy to hear that yeah, exactly cfb's
1: Cabe. gonna get royalties he's
0: ah,
2: got you did so. Cabe.
0: I called you Larry
1: I think it balances out that way you know it out. I'm Larry and you're Cabe. that's where we're gonna go from now on. But one of the things we always talk about, we talk about movies and TV, music, and just all types of pop culture bullshit. So, Sean Waltman, you've been all over the world. I I don't know where, you know, I know you've been in Mexico, Japan, all throughout the U.S., Australia, Canada. If I said, Sean Waltman, I've got a Learjet, it's fully fucking gassed, I've got a credit card, you and I are going to go out to dinner tonight, where are we going? Oh, Man, it's a long way. Yeah, somebody else is paying for it, so we're good. So do if everyone
2: could fit. <laughs> Where was it? Ribera Steakhouse in Tokyo. Oh no, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, maybe just the three of us can fit fit in there at, at one time. But <laughs> yeah, we, we can look at all the, all the photos on the wall. Yeah, Dude, hey, Hey, when you've been on the like when you've been on tour in Japan and all the outside towns outside of Tokyo for a couple of weeks, dude, that freaking Ribera steakhouse tastes like Smith and Walensky's.
0: Yep. Yeah, no, you right. Yeah, when I, when I did the, uh, the 10 days over there, we had seemingly on a nightly basis, we would go to one of the little hibachi uh, restaurants that had like five tables and you get the, uh, the beef and the rice and stuff like that. And that's the entire meal. And then you pay like four bucks for it. Plenty yeah, of beer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, then oh. when you finally get to Ribera, you're like, uh, oh, I'm in fucking paradise now, man. So, yeah, that's that's definitely good stuff. So the next food-related question, and that's a good answer, by the way. Uh, one of the uh, questions we always ask in a group, Sean Walbin, does pineapple belong on pizza?
2: It belongs on my pizza sometimes. No. Really? We, we may have to edit <laughs> Grab this uh, broadcast now. Grabbing my you know, heart. Yeah. So. Every now and again, every now and again, I, I mean, not it's only on Hawaiian style, not just for the hell of it. Yeah, if that makes yeah. a difference. I'll, I'll take so. that as an answer.
0: I'll take that as an answer. So, ne- next question uh, you're a fan of movies, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, Die Hard, the original with Bruce Willis. Okay.
1: <laughs> is
0: that
2: a Christmas movie or is it just an action film and a great action film at that? Like, honestly, for me, it was just an action film, but I don't ah! have any. I don't have any like huge problem with someone with it being a Christmas movie to some people, but like for me, it was an action movie, man. Gotcha. And a great one. There's no question about it. I think it's one of the
1: 10 most influential films of the
0: the 1980s. Actually, that's actually something that you just came up with there. Bear. Amazing.
1: Isn't it? We just (laughs) talked about that last week. (laughs) Yeah. So, so Sean Waltman, your favorite film of all time. I said, we're gonna go to Ribera's Steakhouse. We're gonna have a great dinner. Got a big 60-inch uh, TV, flat screen. What are we gonna put on? What What is the movie of choice?
2: Can I make it my favorite wrestling movie? Anything you want. Grunt the wrestling movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was not expecting that answer. No. You got you got
2: Citizen Kane and Grunt the Wrestling Movie. That's uh, about it, uh, huh? And Die Hard. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Die Hard. No, but I love the classics. I love the you know the, the greats and everything. and and Citizen Citizen Kane was a great movie. Sure. Obviously, it's considered the best movie of all time by a lot of people. But. Um, it's so many, man. I have a hard time answering what's your favorite movie and what's your favorite song. I know. And it's yeah. tough because the,
1: the second we stop recording, you're gonna go, shit, that's my favorite yeah. movie, and I should have said it. Exactly Big, Big Lebowski. Thumbs up. Oh yeah. All right. Yeah. So, oh yeah.
0: So 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 when you're on the road traveling in a car and you want to put something uh, you know, on, on the satellite or whatever, what well, what kind of shit you listening to? Like who mm. who what kind of bands and singers you like?
2: I, man do you guys listen to Sirius? Oh, of course yeah man i know this might sound kind of weird but man i can't i can't take it off channel 311 yacht rock for some reason
0: i uh, i got that on my yeah, i'm maybe, maybe i shouldn't admit that but i occasionally listen to the yacht rock so i <laughs> uh, you know i gotta tell you sean one of what the things that? i talk about is what, what I, is I, what is it's yacht like rock. soft rock you know like, like uh, air supply a- ambrosia Don't that kind of shit you know <laughs> But yeah. uh, but you know, like I always say, I, there are times when I want to listen to ACDC or Black Sabbath, and then fucking time I'll listen to Frank Sinatra for God's sakes. You know, it, it's I, like I'm I'm all over the map.
2: On the on the serious dial, I also like Hair Nation, uh, like Rock the Bells, LL Cool J's uh, channel. I'm a, I like all different kinds of shit. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Even country man, like like trying out. Like I got really into country traveling with kurt hennig i learned about all about how every every country is about the business about the rest <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome kurt would be, we'd be driving he'd go okay listen to this part right here it's just like the business man and he'd hold his he'd hold his arm up and go look at the goosebumps <laughs> <laughs> that's, awesome. that's awesome merle haggard guys like that oh yeah for a lot of the Stokey. guys
1: yeah who Okie from Muskoki. That's uh, Merle oh, Haggard. I heard a song today. I was listening to a reggae channel on Sirius, and there's a reggae song with Willie Nelson. I mean, it, you talk about the most. It's the most Wiz- bizarre song,
2: huh? It's I think it's Wiz Khalifa and Willie Nelson. Was that it? Okay. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Bizarre, but yet I. Which, by the stop way, listening.
0: first time we've ever talked about Wiz Khalifa here on the show. Uh-huh. Barry. About you know, time. Almost. We are. We door are, door. are. We are trendsetters, if nothing else.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. So,
0: well, Sean, well, restaurants in uh, the uh, the area where you live, uh, are you a fan of uh, you know the the steakhouses, uh, Burns, and that kind of stuff? Oh, uh, Burns, that's in Tampa. Oh, I thought that's where you were living right now. I'm sorry. I live in L.A., man.
2: <laughs> oh, <okay.
0: laughs> well, now Barry can talk about In n Out Burger with Shit, you. We'll talk about
1: In n Out Burger. We'll talk about Roscoe's uh, fried chicken and waffles. Yeah, I
2: live not far from the Pasadena Roscoe's. Oh, wow. Yeah, we. You're in, you're in Orange County. Yeah, we get, no, 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 I'm in, I'm in LA proper. Okay. I'm close to Pasadena, which is kind of Northeastern LA. Right. Yeah. So, and we have amazing restaurants here, man, obviously my favorite, my favorite watering hole. um, They have amazing pizza and uh, like the rest of their menu is amazing too. Is the rainbow bar and grill on sunset Boulevard. Sure. What's
0: the, what's the place, Barry, where they do the uh, the roast beef sandwiches, where they have the dip, the au jus that you dip it in? It's it's like been there for like sixty friggin' years. That I don't know. Yeah. Uh, now somebody's gonna come in the group and go, "Oh, I can't believe you didn't fucking know the name of that place." Yeah, that's Make exactly a- what'll happen. Yeah. So, so, well, since you don't mind, uh, we'll just ask you a couple questions about the rest of your, so you, you make your way from Tampa up to Minnesota to continue your training. Uh, you had your series with Jerry Lynn and stuff like that. Uh, was that like a culture shock? Did you enjoy the change or what?
2: It was both. It was both because Minneapolis like is way different than Florida, man. (laughs) A little bit, huh? I'm not going to go into all the reasons why it's way different. Yeah. And, uh, um, but I was so exciting for me, you guys. Uh, so Tom Nash had passed through there on his way to Calgary. And, uh, also, um, there's a guy named Marvin Joel Rubin. Do you sure. guys familiar with
1: him? Yep. Historian. He's a historian. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, Willie Wellington Wilkins Jr. Was, was living with Marvin and I came to minnesota and i went to duluth minnesota first and then uh eventually i started living on uh, marvin's couch um and then another guy who was friends with dave heath his name was bruce Facente. he wrestled as the shocker he was like 400 pounds yeah uh, he was from rhode island and then he came and so it was me and bruce Facente living on marvin well bruce was living on his floor because he couldn't fit on the roll on the on the hideaway bed um uh, just it was just this wasn't gonna happen. I was already on it, and it was this was a one bedroom apartment. and Marvin's like got is overrun with a bunch of you know wannabe uh, would be wrestlers, so it was it was a hell of an experience. Hey, but Jeff, no man, I'm it sorry. was so, like, yeah. so so um, yeah, it was so much different, man. Like the, the crowds were bigger uh, for the shows, and I got a hundred dollar payoff, and I thought I'd made it in wrestling. There because you, he's he, he, retiring. If 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 you did good on an independent show in Florida, you got a twenty a, a twenty dollar bill.
1: Right. Jeff, uh, sweet sweet Lou checking in. The restaurant is Philippe's. Absolutely. Uh, with you ever the been there, Sean? Dip.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 but I know I know it. I haven't been yeah. there though.
0: Yeah, that's it's been there like something like 60 years or something like that. And uh, they were the first ones to do the uh, the uh, jus dip, I think, with the roast beef. So very famous. So uh, so uh, so after Minnesota, then uh, when did you go? I t- I'll tell you one thing. I'll just touch upon this very briefly with your WWE career was the, the bit you did with Scott as the one, two, three kid where, you know, you're holding on, you're holding on. And then you upset that, that to me, that should be like a template on how to get a young guy over a a guy that's, that's willing to work with him.
2: Hey, I want to talk a little bit more about Minnesota, but Oh, sure. Go ahead. No, no. But speaking on this, dude, there was, can you think of a better way to bring somebody in? Like, especially somebody like me, um, uh, you, you know, usually it was six weeks of vignettes and you get some squash matches on TV. Sure. And it was just a unique way of doing it. And and it turned, it turned Razor Babyface also in the process. So it killed two birds with one stone. And yeah. it was very well thought out, man. Vince called me on the phone uh, a couple, like it seemed like forever after my tryout, but it was probably only like three weeks. And he's like, okay, this is what we had in mind. And Pat was on the line too, Pat Patterson. Sure. And he ran the whole thing by me. Like in detail, man. And, uh, and that's exactly how it went, except for, I had six weeks in between the challenge match and the, um, and the, and, and me beating him because I had to go new Japan just hired me and, and they were bringing me to the 93 super junior tournament, which was a huge, which huge, it was huge for me. Sure, That's what I thought my future was. But then I got the call from WWF and man, I, you know. I never thought I would get that. So I had to take it.
0: So who are some of the guys in the, uh, the 93 tournament that you were with? was Chris over there and Owen and those guys or what?
2: Okay. No, Owen wasn't there. Uh, Benoit was there. Uh, too cold Scorpio was there. Okay. Blanco was there. Eddie Guerrero was there. Now was he Uh, under the black tiger hood or, or as Eddie Guerrero? No, he was just Eddie Guerrero. Okay. Um, oh shit. I know I'm missing somebody, you guys. Uh, oh, Dave Finley. Okay. Dave Finley. My first match in New Japan uh, at Omiya Skate Rink was with Dave Finley. And he, he put me over and made me look like a million bucks, man. What a way to start my uh, tour off. Nice. And I was like, oh, my God. I, Dave Finley's going to put me over. Holy yeah. shit. So did you work Liger in the tournament, too? Oh, yes. There's pictures of it up on, on Twitter. Somebody posted. And people were anticipating it, like it was like, oh, okay, Lightning Kid versus Liger. I shit the bed so bad, <laughs> <laughs> I slipped off the ropes trying to do the Silver King dive, uh, and he was sitting there looking at me like, and and he, oh man, he was really nice about it, but I was so fucking humiliated. Yeah, I was so embarrassed, you guys. Yeah, greatest greatest light heavyweight of all time, you think? I think it's he's definitely in the in the conversation. Sure. Yeah. Three.
0: Yeah, just uh, admit. You know, it was amazing always to me that that guy basically would book those tournaments, and you know, you'd you'd have certain guys that would just be assholes and put themselves over every single tournament, and that guy would book himself to lose, like, and you know, very early on. Yeah, so he was he was an incredible booker for those tournaments too.
2: Oh yeah. So so, anyways, like going back to Minnesota, I got booked to the Super Junior tournament combination like like Liger saw me at a Universal show, but the main reason was. Uh, when the Hellraisers formed, when, when, when Kensuke yes. and Road Warrior Hawk formed, their first match was beating the shit out of two guys at that bar that Jerry Lynn and I used to wrestle at in, in Minnesota. And by then, Jerry Lynn and I were tag team partners. So, like, I was booking the whole show. And I booked I booked Jerry and I versus Masa Saito and Brad Rangit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oof. And, yeah. uh, oh, but, but Masa liked me and he, he brought me to Japan for that. I was kind of sort of one of Masa's guys.
1: Nice. Nice. Yeah, and also, you know,
2: Toughest guy ever.
1: Literally maybe. right up there in the conversation. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
2: Absolutely. I'll, 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 hey, you remember when, uh, when my uh, cheap shot at Ricky Choshu. Sure. Sure do. I, I missed it by three
0: fucking days. That's the tour I went over for. So my two favorite wrestlers in the world at the time were Maida and Choshu, and I get over there and the guy I was with goes, Oh yeah, they're both out of the
2: fucking tournament. They
1: uh <laughs> they had a little incident.
2: Yeah, well Well, I mean, i w I'd like to I'd like to uh describe it as something else, but that's what it was. It was a cheap shot. Sure, yeah. And um and that but you know, when Masa Saito got in the ring, everybody backed the fuck up. Yeah. If you can watch it. You can watch it and see. Um but, yeah, no, that was what secured my New Japan deal. And the thing about what Minnesota was is, you know, obviously they were the land of giants, right? Yeah. You know, all the big guys came from there. And when I when I arrived on the scene, they were still there and on these shows I was on. But they weren't trained, unless they were trained by Brad, they weren't trained nearly as good as Malenko's guys. So, like, I could wrestle, man. I could go out there and do shit that none of those guys could do. So it made me stand out. You know, like, and I had a match with Ricky Rice, my first match there. And, and, uh, and it, when they see me, when they saw me do my shit, they laughed at me when I, when I first got in the ring. And then once I started doing my stuff, the place went nuts. So yeah, man, they, it was Minnesota was, yeah. Yeah, it was, it
0: was Ricky and Derek Dukes were the two big guys up there. Right. And the, yeah. the, in, in the independent level. Up the, yeah. So I was going to tell you, you know, when I, when I went on that tour, Talking about Masa Saito and how tough he was. uh, I've told this story on the show before. I've never told you it is we went to a spot show uh, and it was the Von Erics against uh, Takata and Osamu Kido, who are both UWF guys. Okay, so they're they're working and everything's fine with Kerry and Kevin. And so then they do a bit where Kevin tags in and he's in with Takata, right? So, yeah. of course, we're at the spot show. So, we're literally the only guys in the building that speak fucking English, okay? Except maybe the referee. And so, Kevin gets in the ring and he looks at Takata and he goes, Go ahead, shoot your shit, motherfucker. <laughs> and Takata, yeah. And Takata, like, looks at him, backs him into the corner, hits him with about 10 kicks to the chest in four seconds. I mean, like, the quickest kicks you've ever fucking seen in your life. <laughs> and, and Kevin walks over to the corner and tacks out and gets out of <laughs> fucking <ring. laughs>
2: did he sell it huh did oh he, he, was, it? he was he was like i don't think he had to sell it i think he was he was hurt. Yeah. yeah so yeah well i'm sure like their reputation preceded themselves like like th- those guys didn't give much uh didn't give an inch in their matches in texas
0: no they were very <laughs> stiff
2: very stiff. Yeah. you had to fight for everything you got with those guys from what i could tell
1: yeah. yeah. So, hey, so going back to Masa Saito, too, and I uh, I bring this up. So, one of Tom, Na- Jeff, Tom Nash getting another mention.
0: I, you know, we're going to have to put his photo up on the uh We're going to have to
1: let people, exactly. One of his favorite tag teams was a tag team that uh, we saw in Florida in 1977 and 78. And it was Masa Saito and uh, Mr. Sato, who became the great Kabuki. And yeah. they had a series of matches. Uh, with a uh, you know a bunch of different teams, but they they worked Wahoo McDaniel a lot, and I was in uh, West Palm Beach, and I'm sitting as far in West Palm Beach was another one called the Leaky Teepee because uh, it, the 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 ceiling the roof had holes in it and water would come down, so we're sitting all the way up top, and I don't know why we're all the way up top, and you can hear Saito and Wahoo chopping each other all the way up top. We must be 500 feet from the ring. I don't even know. I mean, we're just, you know, we're, we're that far from the ring. And all you're hearing is, bam, these two guys are laying it in like it's unbelievable. But Masa Saido, to me, I, I think he's one of the greatest I've ever had the, the pleasure of seeing. Uh, and Just a guy that I would have loved to have had a 10-minute conversation with at some point. So I envy you about that.
2: Oh yeah. Hey man, like one of the coolest things I thought for Masa was when they gave him the AWA title at the Tokyo Dome. I was yeah. so happy for him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. Yeah. I always thought I always thought it'd be great to give somebody uh, you know, the way they gave Magnum the belly-to-belly finisher out of nowhere when he was in mid-south was to give uh give somebody Saitos a side suplex, you know. Because I don't when he did it, man, that looked fucking awesome. You know, and I always thought that was that was great stuff. So, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Uh-huh. was we're talking about you working with razor was it brought to mind to me. And I don't know whether or not you ever had a chance to saw uh, see this because you would have been pretty young at the time. Did you ever, did you ever used to watch Georgia wrestling?
2: Oh uh, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever, a quick plug for the 605 podcast there, Barry, did you notice that? Sean, right on top of things. But anyway, <laughs> did you uh, did you ever see the angle they did where Gino Hernandez showed up and wrestled Brad Armstrong, had zero introduction? It's like, here's Brad Armstrong, and he's facing Gino Hernandez. And, like, they didn't make any kind of big deal out of Gino. And then Gino goes and beats Brad on TV completely out of fucking nowhere And Piper's the color guy, and Piper absolutely loses his mind that this guy that they've never heard of has beaten Brad Armstrong on TV. And it was very similar to what happened with you and Scott.
2: Oh, wow. And Gino, obviously, we you know. Sure, yeah, yeah. Somebody's listening to this podcast already. They know Gino Hernandez was a prodigy, right? Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. No, I'm going to go check it out because, like, there's this guy, Chris Zellner, and he has a lot of really cool uh, – Championship wrestling videos. Yeah, I I follow him on Twitter too. Yeah, got a lot of
0: got a lot of good stuff. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So, uh, because I I went and rewatched all that stuff, and I love it, man. Um, I love the look. Like even when they had that real tiny ring in the real early eighties, like it just it was a neat look, man. And they shot it well for the for the for the. I mean, it was a small room, and they got the most. It was was really small.
1: Really, really a small room. I I saw a couple of, t- of TV tapings in a, at the old uh, at the old TBS studio, which I think at that point might have even been W T O G. Lou, Lou would know.
2: T O G is forty four in Tampa.
1: Oh, okay. Then I yeah. What what do I know? But yeah, I forget. I forget what, <laughs> you
2: I forget what the call expert, letters Sean.
1: were. Uh, but they used to film. But it was there was maybe I don't know seventy five seats max. I mean, wow. it was really small. You know, Sean
0: yeah. Barry, Barry was there uh, in the uh, in Atlanta the night that uh, they did the turn on Dusty with Oli in the cage.
2: Oh, I was just watching that.
0: Yeah. 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 We were talking about great last week. We were talking about the great heel turns of all time. And uh, that was, you know, somebody had mentioned the one where Wyndham uh, turned on, uh, who was it, uh, Luger or whatever. And then, yeah. And then he became, you know, went after Dusty and joined the horsemen and stuff like that. Like, what were the great heel turns of all time? And I said, well, shit, Barry, you were you frigging friggin' Atlanta the night that uh, there was a riot because Ole and uh, it, you know, turned on Dusty in the cage. So. Yeah, it's always cool to be
1: part of wrestling history, you know. Yeah, on that note, Sean, have you ever been in any any full out, full scale riots?
2: Uh, we had we had that one in in Canton, Ohio, it was MWO versus, but it was a different kind of riot, man. They were rioting with each other. Uh, the MWO, <laughs> that's, that's always nice of them, you know, to leave you out of it. it was crazy! It was like a hooligan at at a soccer match. Like oh. they were fighting. The fans were fighting each other. WCW versus NWO.
0: Gotcha. As, yeah. As, Yeah,
2: Yeah. I I, I actually in Mexico when I was in Mexico, like I had to fight, fight a little bit, fight the fans a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
2: I was I was in uh, I was
0: in Orlando talking about it wasn't a riot. It was a near riot when uh, when Hogan faced Flair for the first time they had brought Hogan into WCW and Shaq came down to the ring with uh, with Hogan and stuff like that. And we were all cheering for Flair in our row and the row in front of us were all Hogan fans. And they were, like, wanting to fight us because we were cheering for Flair. And, you know, it was like, you know, we were just shit-talking one another the whole, oh, no, fucking Flair's winning this match. There's no question about it. And they're like, fuck you. And I go, you know, afterwards, it was so much fun, you know, just, like, being that close to all
2: hell breaking loose, you know. But good times yeah. being an asshole, you know. And then, you know, obviously, during that uh, during that era when, when people start throwing shit in the ring, nwo it started with nwo and then it it went over into into wwe i remember like i wasn't there but people start throwing shit and sean's like if throw one more thing you you don't get your main event and sure enough boom somebody hit him with something out he went and the place just just started destroying the building
0: wow yeah that'll put a damper on the old card huh so well listen. Hey man, we want to say how much we appreciate you stopping Absolutely. in and talking a little bit of old school wrestling with, you know, with you. It's, it's always, it's always great to talk to somebody that was a fan of the business back in the early days. And I think it just adds so much to the appreciation of, uh, you know, when you look back on your own history as a fan before you got into business and on behalf of Barry and Lucian, I can't tell you how much we appreciate this, my man.
2: Hey, me too, man. I, I, I'm grateful that you reached out because, you know, like I was saying, I do I get asked to do a lot of podcasts. I just don't have time. Uh, but I, I really want to make time for this cause you know, it was fun, man. It was fun sitting here. Like it's an, we're, this is a little bit more than a half an hour. We've been talking now. And <laughs> I'm just I, Yeah. So,
0: okay. so
2: and, and Hey, why don't, why don't you uh, tell the folks about your own
0: podcast and give you a little plug.
2: Yeah. It comes out every Thursday, which means it's dropping tomorrow. I don't, to yeah. I don't even know what day it is. today. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, it's drops tomorrow, um, uh, every Thursday and, um, oh, this t- tomorrow, uh, on the episode, we have Molly Holly and, uh, I think Sam Roberts. Yeah. Sam Roberts. Anyways. Um, I have different segments where I do different things. I do a game show on there also at, on the last segment. It's like a trivia show where I bring the, the fans on. I just yeah. like to interact with the people, you know, absolutely. Billy Jack style. <laughs> but, oh, but oh, but <laughs> yeah but pro Yeah, but um it's Pro Wrestling for Life. You can find it on wherever you get your po- podcasts and it's on YouTube, my YouTube channel uh youtubecom xpoc and um yeah, man, it's we just started it back up uh with a new format and it's been going great, man. We had Rick Flair on the first episode. We had Luger, uh, uh, Chavo Guerrero Jr um but yeah man um I'm, I'm having a really good time doing it and i um check it out i tell you
0: Absolutely. i tell you I, I don't know if you uh, if you know him but we recently had on jim brunzel i don't know if you know jim fantastic guest uh remembers everything in detail and uh we had a lot of fun talking with jim you know i would encourage you if you uh, have any connection with jim to reach out because he yeah. was a fantastic guest yeah, for us yeah on twitter yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, Sean, on behalf of Lou and my uh, Lou Barry, or, or as I call him sometimes, Larry. Larry. <laughs> <There
2: you go>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm I'm Cade. So, uh, Sean, thanks so much for joining us, my man. I had a great time, you guys. Thank you.
0: So Barry, very appreciative of Sean Waltman, a good guy, and we had a lot of fun talking with him.
1: You know, I tell you too, I, and I, I've enjoyed Sean Waltman's work for years. Uh, I I'm one of those, I actually thought he was a, he was a very solid worker and a very solid wrestler, but I actually really like this guy and Jeff, I, I'm going to go on a limb and say, this might've been my favorite interview we've ever done. I think you say that after every interview. I think I do. I think you do. So now Barry. As I
2: mentioned
0: recently in a Facebook group, we had a discussion. Someone brought up a picture of Clint Eastwood. And so I said to myself, what are going to be our top ten Clint Eastwood movies? I'll take five. Barry will take five. Now, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, Barry, because I've discussed my own personal top ten list. Uh, on these uh, very fine airwaves before my, of course, number, I think it's uh, five or six movie in my top 10 is of course, unforgiven, which I think is the the greatest Western of all time. And then like my number nine film is the outlaw Josie Wales. So I'm going to eliminate those two awesome, great Clint Eastwood movies from my selection. And I'm going to pick five other movies because let's be honest, Clint has a great body of work. I think that's fair to say
1: bear. Yeah. Let me ask you. So are you, and with this list, I know what I did, but are you – Clint has to be an actor in these films. I know he's acted and directed his own Oh, movies. yeah, no, I'm talking about Clint acting only. Okay, gotcha. Uh, yeah, and Unforgiven, I would agree with you. Unforgiven is an amazing movie. Uh, I don't know, Jeff. I, I It was up to me. I'd crowbar that right in there and say, hey, uh, Unforgiven to me, as you said, it's, it's – I think it's considered one of the great Westerns, not just by yourself, but, I mean, universally considered one of the great Westerns of all time.
0: I think if I'm going greatest westerns of all time, uh I'd probably go Unforgiven. I'd probably go uh uh Silverado. Uh, I don't know if I go Silverado. Would go Silverado. Uh, I, I would definitely go The Searchers with John Wayne. That's an amazing film. Uh uh Ride the High Country with Randolph Scott and Joel McCrae. That's a fantastic film. Cogburn
1: you're yeah. gonna now you're well right. i go true grit before rooster true, i know i'm fucking with you i know you're not going rooster. i Con hate word. when you
0: fuck with me like that
1: <laughs> so barry why don't you discuss uh the movie you give one and then i'll give one that sounds like it gets the way we used to do it when you used to do the top so. five so what is interesting and no about particular Reefus. order here by the way no order actually no order whatsoever on this what's interesting about the list is i certainly went kind of in one direction and you went in the other direction, my direction obviously is going to be dirty Harry. And I talked about this when we were talking about great movie franchises and I fucking love the dirty Harry movies, even the, the ones that, you know, maybe not as popular. And I think, uh, what was it? Drowning pool. That, yes. Yeah. That, And I think that was the last Dirty Harry movie. If Jim Carrey as the drug addicted rock star. Yeah. It, not a great movie, but Clint, you know, if you like Clint Eastwood and you liked him as Dirty Harry, I feel like I could watch him in anything. It wouldn't matter to me. Uh, yes, sir. gentlemen.
0: Uh, slight uh, correction. Not The Drowning Pool. The, the dead, dead Pool.
1: pool. Thank you. you. The Drowning
0: Pool was, uh, was Harper uh, that Paul Newman played in the late
1: 60s. There you go. I'll That's go a that. different franchise, but anyway, go That's ahead. That's a great franchise. And in Sudden Impact, which Jeff, you and I talked about off air, uh, very disturbing scene in that movie. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and he was dating at the time. You know, dating Sandra Locke. Uh, he had Clint had something where he did like to uh, feature uh, his his paramour, his other halves in his films. Uh, was, it, uh, Francis, uh, was it Francis? Was it Francis Fisher? Fisher? I believe, yeah. yeah. Uh, and they a lot of these breakups seem very acrimonious as well. Yeah, very, very, very yeah. acrimonious. So there's some shit there. But uh, for me, uh, I'm going to start off. I'll go dirty, Harry. Uh, you know, I, I this was such a revolutionary film the first time that I ever saw it. And, uh, you know, he, there's just so much about this film, too. A, I love the killers. Scorpio, uh, which was played by Andrew Robinson, who really never had the career he should have had and i believe it's probably he was kind of being typecast i think we saw him in a couple other movies might have been in uh cobra was he in cobra uh yeah he played the uh, i think
0: police lieutenant or something yeah. like that he always
1: Kobe. was like he was always like an unlikable character yes. after this film but boy was he great in this film and i mean when when you think about this too there's so much about this too uh you know do you feel lucky punk You know, that that became kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, I'll Be Back, you know, and that the 44 Magnum handgun. But this is this to me is such a great movie. And this is the movie I think made Clint Eastwood not take out the Western stuff because he had already been doing that for years. But as far as being like the leading man in an action film, Dirty Harry was it. And I'll never forget the first time that I saw it. Uh, I snuck into a movie theater in Sunny Isles, Florida. Uh, I knew Brian Brennan. Brian Brennan, shout out to you. He he was an usher and he opened up the door for us. And all of us, like who were like nine years old, fucking snuck in to watch us And there are breasts in the movie, which was you know that was a big deal when you're nine years old. Uh, so I, yeah, so much about this movie I love, but I, I love uh, how his partner keeps going. Why do they call you Dirty Harry? Why do they call you Dirty Harry? You know, and it's, uh, and eventually it's every dirty job that comes along. But, uh, Clint Eastwood to me is Dirty Harry. I just think, you know, it, it, it's, he's fucking gold.
0: You know, uh, what you, uh, mentioned about Andrew Robinson is spot on because that is probably, I think, didn't we do a thing about the greatest movie villains? And I, I don't think we mentioned the performance by Andrew Robinson as Scorpio. He was so fantastic. As I recall, we mentioned that. I, I think the guy had trouble finding work afterwards because yeah. people thought he was legitimately crazy because he was so good in that movie. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic, uh, again, great hero, great villain. That's always going to be like the, the diamond gold standard, Uh diamond gold standard. I don't know, whatever, yeah, uh, like but that, that that's like just, you know, it's the penultimate. If you will, Barry, <laughs> you somebody go. out there is now going, that's not what it fucking means. Anyway, my first choice uh, is uh, "Where Eagles Dare," which was an Alistair MacLean uh, novel. They turned into a movie with uh, with Clint and Richard Burton. and And this one, Clint is more of the second lead. Richard Burton really has the lead. And it's about a uh, it's a World War II movie. It's set uh, where they have to go uh, capture recapture a general that the, the Nazis have uh, have taken prisoner, or did they? And so uh, it's a like like a lot of like World War II spy stuff. And I, I can remember seeing this at a uh, movie that when my, my dad was still in the Navy, uh, the movie theaters were not indoor. They were outdoor movie theaters. And when I say that it, they weren't driving theaters, they were, it was like one, uh, you've been to Pompano beach, Amphitheater, bear. I have absolutely. Okay. And, and like where they have the outdoor seating, but if they put a screen there and they showed movies at night, and that, that's what they did, and it was like a really interesting way to watch movies, and uh, that's where I first saw this movie when I was a young kid, and uh, the, like, you were talking about, you know, breast and shoot shoot 'em ups and stuff like that and dirty hair, and this one, they had the thing where they were using the explosives where they would, you know, attach it to one wall and then put the trip wire and attach it to the other ones, and the Nazis would run over it, and, you know, boom, they would... They would uh, blow up all the Nazis and stuff like that. And when you're uh, like a 10- or 11-year-old kid and you're watching this, you're like, yeah, this is fucking excellent. You know? And so that was good times. Uh, so, And I'm going to tell you what, Barry, I'm going to bleed into my number two because it's similar. My number two Clint Eastwood film is uh, Kelly's Heroes, which was uh, just fantastic with uh, Telly Savalas as a sergeant and Don Rickles coming in his crap game, the, huh. the supply sergeant that uh, would get them all their stuff. <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, another great, uh, that was the two great Clint Eastwood World War II movies that I enjoyed so much, Bear.
1: Yeah, so a couple of notes. How old were you when your dad took you to see that movie?
0: Which one? Where Eagles Dare? Yeah, the one that oh, you saw. Oh, no, right? no, He didn't, it, me and my buddies went.
1: Oh, okay, I thought you see that. These were
0: dad. PG-13. Uh, it was suggested, oh. but not required, the parental guidance.
1: Gotcha. So in the second aspect, the reason I was going to say, my, when I was young, my father took me to see... Uh, a movie called Freaks, Todd Browning's Freaks, and I was yeah. probably eight or nine years old, and I think that explains a lot at this stage of my life. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it left an impression on me. I never forgot 50 it years, to this day. Fifty
0: years after it was made, it still made an impression on a young Barry, uh, it oh, was yeah. like 1932 that movie came out, yeah. I think.
1: Yeah, but it, it was one of the, you know, one of the first movies that I can really recall, and it, he took me, it was uh, playing it like a, uh, uh, in Miami Beach at a library in Miami Beach, and they were, yeah, They had some sort of showing of it, and he took yeah. me to see it.
0: Why wouldn't a library show freak? Yeah,
1: yeah. Very bizarre. <laughs> Can you well, imagine that happening now? Oh, my yeah. God. No, no, they could never do it. And the second <laughs> thing was Richard Burton. So Richard, as I was saying with uh, the wrestlers like Bob Orton and Cowboy Bob Ellis, largely forgotten by today's fan. And Richard Burton's another one of those. This guy was a this was a real actor, Richard Burton. And he died in 1984. Uh, and you know, the 84, obviously now being 37 years ago. And it, I, I think a lot of, a lot of people that, that like film, but if you're younger, Richard Burton is completely off your radar. But when you see him act, he was a fucking actor. This guy was incredible. Oh, I yeah, people, no, he was great. yeah. People know him as the, uh, the ex-husband multiple times. I think of Elizabeth Taylor, the late Elizabeth Taylor, but Richard Burton really was something spectacular. Yeah.
0: And of course, you know, the catchphrase, uh, broadsword calling Danny boy, broadsword calling <laughs> Danny boy. So here's a, uh, I'm going to little break K fabe about another group, uh, in John McAdams, uh, pro wrestling and whatever Facebook group, there is a guy that's in the group whose Facebook name is Cartwright Jones. Yes. Cartwright Jones is a character in where Eagles dare. And I remember when I first saw that name, I reached out and I go, I might be the only person that gets that reference. Uh, to Cartwright-Jones being the—that was the general they were going after, uh, uh, that uh, that Eastwood and Burton were going after behind uh, the enemy lines. So very obscure. I, I love obscure references, and that's about as obscure as they come. But uh, Kelly's Heroes, another one where the guys are—they're going behind enemy lines, uh, in this case to go get uh, gold that's hidden in a, a bank uh, behind the German lines. And uh, really, besides uh, I mentioned uh, Rickles, Carol O'Connor. This was pre-Archie Bunker. I love and All Carol in the O'Connor. Family. He Love plays it a loudmouth general, yeah. uh, that wants to know what's going on. And, and, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, who else is in the, uh, uh, the movie is, um, oh man, his name is Len something. He, uncle Leo, what's uncle Leo's. role? Uh, oh, Len, Len lesser. Yeah. And he, yeah. he plays like a, a CB that's building a bridge that gets ripped off by the group. And oh my God, Donald Sutherland, Donald Sutherland uh, plays oddball, the tank commander and Gavin McCloyd uh you know from uh, the mary tyler moore show sure. and from the love boat he's Captain like trooping. just yeah just so many great character actors in that movie and that is you know we talk about movies that are a sunday afternoon and it's raining and you got nothing to do and oh look kelly's heroes is on that's just a a great two-hour
1: time killer bear yeah that's and that boy i mean is has there ever been a cast like that in a successful movie like yeah, that? a that's pretty yeah, you fucking know, powerful. Cast. You know, the,
0: the amazing thing is when these movies and when, when Kelly's heroes and where Eagles dare, they talk about the way times have changed. Okay. in uh, good Lord, so many ways, but you know, we used to play, we used to play army in my neighborhood, you know, and you had one group of guys that were the Germans and one group of guys that were the Americans. And you would sit there and you'd pick up like, you know, a baseball bat was your right. Boom, boom, boom. I, I got you. You're dead. Ba-da-da. And I'm sitting there thinking, can you imagine a, 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 Grew a, maybe your parents that are in their early 30s and they've got kids that are 10 or 11, they walk outside and their kids are playing army. They'd want them to go to counseling now, Barry. You know, they, they, it's called having an imagination.
1: Yes. Yeah. You're 100% right about that, too. They've been counseling for six months. Yes. All right, so what's your next uh, Clint Eastwood movie? My next one is Play Misty for me, and this is an interesting movie. This was Clint's directorial debut. So he had, uh, for years, uh, you know, had been starring in movies and decided he wanted to direct. He had a vision. Uh, and uh, he decided to do Play Misty for me. And I I love this movie really for a couple of reasons. One is I think Clint is, Clint shows maybe a different side of himself in this movie, but Jessica Walter does a great job. And she essentially is an obsessed fan. Clint is a DJ. She calls wanting to hear the song Misty over and over and over. Uh, At some point, you know, she becomes kind of obsessive over their relationship, uh, and he tries to break it off, and then she kind of goes psycho, and it's kind of like a, a fatal attraction some 15 years before uh, the fatal attraction deal, but uh, I really enjoy this film, and there's a little uh, a, a little scene in this movie, too. If you remember the bartender uh, who's pouring the beer when they first meet, that was actually Don Siegel, and Don Siegel was Clint's a, yeah, um,
0: and, the director. Yeah.
1: yeah, and that was that was the guy that, that Clint kind of modeled his directorial style after that was his mentor. So, uh, I, I think this is great. And I believe did Jessica Walter just pass away this past year. Mm, yeah.
0: Because she had been in that, uh, what was that TV show with, That's right. uh, uh, Justin
1: Bateman? Uh, shit. Lou. What's the name?
0: Arrested. That's, That's why we pay him the big dollars. Thank yeah. you, Lou. And Lou, so, did I- she
1: just pass away? Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Yes. Darn. Yes, yes she did. Keys. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's funny when you, when you mentioned Don Siegel, uh, you know, at the end of unforgiven, uh, when they scroll through the credits, one of the things you see is Clint Eastwood who directed that film also, uh, put on there, uh, for Sergio and Don, uh, referencing Sergio Leone, who he'd made all the spaghetti Westerns with and Don Siegel, who he made the dirty Harry movies with. And, uh, you know, paying homage to, uh, the guys that greatly influenced him, not only as an actor, but as a, uh, as a budding director at the time. So my third movie uh, from 1977 is Clint Eastwood. And and this is another film that he directed himself, the gauntlet uh, with against Sandra Locke. And this is a eh, not really dirty Harry, but it's kind of close. He plays like a kind of a world weary cop who's given the assignment of escorting a witness. Who's a prostitute. Uh, from, um, I think it's like Vegas or something back to uh, a town in Arizona and, uh, yeah, from Arizona, from Vegas to Phoenix. And what happens is he realizes he's been set up because the mob wants to kill the witness. And so the police force has basically sent him there, uh, to be like, uh, you know, uh, used as, as bait and they're going to bump him and the witness off. And it's all about how they can survive making it back to Phoenix And, you know, he looks upon delivering the witnesses, his final act as a police officer uh, that, uh, you know, and there's a there's just so many great scenes. And here you see uh, if you're an Eastwood fan, you see another example of where uh, some actors, especially the more powerful they get in uh, in Hollywood, they like to use their own crew. It's like a booker in wrestling likes to use his own guys. Right. Right. And You see a lot of guys in this movie that are staples of all the, uh, the Eastwood films, uh, in the minor parts, like in the motorcycle gang, a lot of the guys that are in the motorcycle gang that he and Sandra Locke encounter in the desert are guys that would end up being in the, uh, the black widows, uh, in the other movies with, uh, with the orangutans, which I'll get to that in a second. And, but you'll see a lot of the <laughs> same guy in the, the guys that are in the black widows are in this group as though, like a, a motorcycle gang. And, uh, and the great Pat Hingle uh, plays, a. uh, a buddy of his from the police force, great character actor Barry
1: Pat Hingle. Oh, Pat Hingle also in a great episode of The Twilight Zone. But where do we know Pat Hingle from? Called everybody Bubba. Come on, Bubba, punch that card in uh, Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> that's great... right. He was the guy that owned the you know, little stopping yeah, shop there. That's right, Bubba. Yeah. He was yeah. he
0: was stealing money from the county because he would uh, he would make the guys say that they worked like six hours when he actually had them working ten.
1: <laughs> And they had a little star next to their name on the card. That's, That's right. right. Yeah. Oh God, how can we forget that? Okay, what's your uh, what's your third movie, Bear? Yep, going with. So we're going right back to Dirty Harry. We're going with Magnum Force, and this was the follow up to Dirty Harry. So it's the second one. Came out uh, a couple of years later, nineteen seventy three, and uh, this one I I, I truly love. Uh, this was directed by Ted Post, and Ted Post was a guy that had worked with Eastwood and actually directed Eastwood. In the TV show Rawhide, and I got to tell you, Jeff, I'm praying to God that Rawhide makes your uh, greatest uh, theme TV show theme tournament because the, Rowdy
2: Yates—it's
1: it's, what, what a great song! Especially remember the Blues Brothers doing Rawhide. Oh, which Of course of you do. to forget it. Fucking unbelievable! And uh, Ted Post. Also, yep, Ted Post also directed Eastwood in Hang 'Em High. Really enjoy this movie. Also got some uh, early appearances by guys who would become very famous actors. David Soul, the Hutch of Starsky and Hutch, uh, Robert Urich, uh, the late Robert Urich that we knew from Spencer for Hire and a couple Dan of other shows. Vegas, he was Dan in Vegas, Dan and Dantana, and Tim Matheson, who I mean, my God, what what you know? Tim Matheson's been acting now for fifty something years. We know him from Animal House, but was in Fletch, was in so many different uh, TV shows and movies, and just great. So it's a great cast and i i may even like magnum force maybe a little bit more than i like uh dirty harry but i'm not sure
0: yeah no that's good stuff uh my next uh my next movie is high plains drifter from 1973 where he is uh once again the proverbial man with no name uh he goes into a a town and he uh it's kind of almost like a bit of a supernatural western, if you will, Bear, because you're not sure he's he's a man who never says what his name is, but it's kind of alluded to at the end of the movie that he's like basically the ghost or the specter of the sheriff that the town let be murdered in front of everyone, and he this is his getting his revenge on the town because there are three prisoners, and once again you've got all the guys that are uh, uh, that were uh, part of his film crew. This is another example. So, yeah, it, part of his crew, you had John Quaid, who was in later uh, movies in The Motorcycle Gang and Every Which Way But Loose. You had uh, Jeffrey Lewis, uh, the father of Juliet Lewis. And those guys were in, God, so many Eastwood movies because they were part of his crew. And th- this movie, um, the the way he sort of puts it to the town, he comes in the town and uh, there's... So many great one liners. By the way, one of the female leads in this is Verna Bloom. Barry, <laughs> do you know who Verna Bloom is? <laughs>
1: Tell the folks what she's famous for. Absolutely. She is, in, for me, she is famous for playing uh, the wife of the mayor in Animal House. She's yes. the one that Tim no, Matheson. She's the wife of Dean Vernon Wormer. I don't think so. I think yes. she's, isn't she the mayor's
0: yeah, wife? Because, no, because remember she says, my name is Sonja warmer. And he goes, Oh, oh that's, that's right. We have a Dean Vernon warmer. Oh, that's right. That's I have a Dean right. Vernon warmer at home. That's and right. then he says, mine's bigger. And
1: okay. Isn't cute. this the whole cucumber is sensuous. Exactly. versus sensual? Right. Exactly. Exactly. I also, she was also in this great movie called the after hours, which is in my top 10 of all time. Uh, she plays this amazing character that does these plaster casts of people Uh, And at the very end of the movie and kind of saves the protagonist who played by Griffin Dunn. Uh, And I believe she recently passed away within the last year as well.
0: So there's a, another actress in the movie. Uh, She plays the role of Callie Travers. I don't know what the actress's name is, but there's a, a a scene in the movie. Talk about scenes. You could not film today. Uh, And what happens is uh, Eastwood is walking on the street and the woman on purpose bumps into him and starts giving him shit about the fact that he bumped into her. And he's like, look at these, what are you talking about? And she starts giving him all this lip. And there's this line where she says, uh, you know, she's complaining to the, uh, the other men in the town. Is there anybody that's going to do anything about this? And the one guy that's a town sheriff who's a real weakling goes, okay, now you don't want to get too excited. Just, you're not going to want to take this thing too far. It's just too far. Just is forcible rape, a misdemeanor in this town. And so, uh, <laughs> It was just like, but he comes in and just kicks the ass of the town and basically makes everyone pay for what they did to the sheriff that was killed, who may or may not be him, coming back. And then Jeffrey Lewis, who I mentioned before, uh, ends up playing a guy that's uh, getting out of prison, is coming back to uh, take his revenge on the town also. And now they want Eastwood to defend him, and it's like a whole thing. And High Plains Drifter, Barry, a great, great Western
1: yeah absolutely too and i you know that's I, I think a lot of your films are geared towards uh westerns where i was geared towards dirty hair and you're looking but oh, and, high planes drifter was
0: yeah you will get no argument i love the dirty Harry franchise so i just you know was trying to keep it in a different direction so that we
1: didn't sit there and name the same five fucking movies absolutely. so and, what would be your next film barry and of course my next film jeff uh goes the complete opposite of what i said because this is a western so this is a fistful of dollars which is kind of the film that uh that put Clint on the map. And the story with this is the Italian director, and as you mentioned him earlier, Sergio Leone, he was looking for Henry Fonda, James Coburn, or Charles Bronson. Uh, And I really liked that James Coburn choice, to be honest with you also. And then somebody showed him an episode of Rawhide, and they suggested Eastwood, and Sergio Leone was like, this guy? This guy's gonna do it? But uh, apparently, Clint was willing to work cheap. Leone was desperate. And let's be honest, this worked out better than anybody could have expected. So you think? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly right. You think you, you got a good deal on this one. Uh, but really, from the moment that the man with no name appears on screen, uh, rocking the poncho and, and chewing on his shit, you can sense this is not a guy that you want to mess with. I mean, immediately, this is what I think made Clint Eastwood a movie star was the presence. He didn't have to even say anything. You just fucking saw this guy on the screen. Uh, this is just great. He sells himself uh, as a hired gun, but I just I love this movie on every every level. Uh, years later, Sergio Leone. People were asking him about uh, about Clint Eastwood and asking him about uh, his relationship with Clint, and uh, he had this great quote which I pulled out, and it said, "When Michelangelo was asked why he chose a particular block of marble." He answered that he saw Moses in that block of marble. Leone would then talk about that and say, when I saw Clint Eastwood simply was a block of marble, and that's what I wanted. So uh, I just thought that was such a unique quote. But this is a tremendous film, and this has been playing on one of the streaming services. It might be Tubi or uh, Vizio is uh, Pluto is the other service that shows free movies, and it's playing on one of them. And I watched this about two weeks ago.
0: Yeah, um, I know at some point somebody is going to be listening to this and go, I can't believe you didn't mention the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, uh, you know, kind of well, is what it only is. only 10 movies we could list. Exactly. Make. You know? <laughs> so the guy literally has 50 friggin' movies we could yeah. li- list. And these are our personal choices, which is why my fifth and final Clint choice will be seen as uh, something as, uh, you know, like, what the hell are you thinking about picking this one? But I talked about before Sunday afternoon, it's raining out. Uh, there's nothing on TV. What can I watch? I'm flipping the channels. And every which way but loose is on, and it's fantastic. And I, I love him. And Clyde, left turn or right turn Clyde. And, again, you got the Black Widow motorcycle group. You've got Jeffrey Lewis uh, playing his brother. Uh, and I think Orville is his name. And, uh, and then, of course, Clint is Philo Beto. The mother, Ruth Gordon. How fucking awesome is she in this movie, Bear? Yeah, well, Ruth Gordon, what a tremendous actress, absolutely. And she she's uh, hysterical. And uh, Sandra Locke is again in this movie. And this is a movie that, let's be honest, it's probably an hour and forty five minutes long. It requires no thought whatsoever. He plays a barefisted fighter, uh, and he's just going from town to town making money. Uh, when he's not scrapping cars with his orangutan Clyde. Uh, oh, by the way, very bit of movie trivia. Do you remember the guy, uh, no, I didn't check this, of course, the guy that used to be one of the, uh, the supporting actors uh, on Miami Vice, there was uh, Switek and Zito. Yeah, yeah, uh, John yeah. Deal? No, the other guy, he played the... The uh, chubbier guy. Yeah. Okay. So, in the scene at the end of the movie, when they're driving back through the desert, and they get pulled over by the motorcycle cop, and that's when he does right turn and collide, or no, Sandra Locke does right turn and collide, and the the orangutan punches the cop in the desert, who's going to have his vehicle towed because he's got the orangutan in the uh, you know vehicle and stuff like that. That's the guy from Miami Vice. That's like one of his first roles. He was the 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 cranky motorcycle cop. Did and, he uh,
1: did he just disappear after Miami Vice? Uh,
0: pretty much every supporting act, except Edward James, almost I think. Yeah, because oh, he's uh, in
1: he's in Mayans MC, which I watch, uh, which is on after. Well, no, he he did stuff, but like you know. Uh, yeah. Sandra Santiago, Olivia Cole, yeah. uh, you know, those guys, they didn't do anything.
0: And now it's going to make me crazy. So I have to think his name is Michael Talbot. Thank you very much, Jeff. As I had to scramble to pull up thing, but yeah, so he's in the very end scene in every which way, but loose. So Sunday afternoon, it's raining every which way, but loose is on. I'm in Barry. What about you?
1: Yeah, it's a fun movie too. And again, Jeffrey Lewis, uh, Jeffrey Lewis, you know, sometimes I, it's because I have no life. Sometimes I uh, I'll sit and think about people. I would have loved to have as guests on our show. And Jeffrey Lewis is one of those guys. He was in obviously night of the comet, which is uh, in my my seventh favorite movie of all time. But uh, he was on so many different TV shows. He was in this uh, episode of Walker, Texas Ranger. I was just watching. He was in so many films throughout the years. And I just, there was something about him that I just was, I thought he was so cool. Jeffrey Lewis would have loved if he was still with us to have on our show, but, uh, yeah, it's a fun movie. And, uh, you know, it, this is Clint Eastwood is kind of, if you like Clint Eastwood as an actor, I, you can almost watch him in anything. And certainly he's had a couple of films. That's a little harder to do that, uh, than others. But I gotta tell you, I watched
0: him like a year or two ago when he played a guy that was 90 years old. And did you see the mule? No, I've heard it's very good. Yeah, though. he was fucking great in that. He's like ninety years old, and he's a completely different. He's a guy that's being pushed around. Yeah, and all that. But he was still great
1: in the role. It was a you know a, a really good movie. Is he he was. Uh, I saw him in Grand Torino, which I thought he was great. Is he still making movies as an actor?
0: I think that might have been his last movie as an actor. I think he's uh, he's in the process of directing a film. It's got to be close to his last film though, because you know, like hey, you in said, he's in his nineties. right. And, and we put we posted the picture. Uh, in the, uh, the group, uh, today, the day of this recording, somebody posted a picture of him pumping gas,
1: you know, yeah. and you know, he's like a, a frill kick man. our asses. You know what I mean? That's the, I, know. I mean, still take was, us out. I'll tell but, you which one movie I thought was very tough to watch was a uh, pink Cadillac with Bernadette Peters. That's a Clint movie. I never saw. I know yeah. the movie
0: you're talking about. I never saw it.
1: Yeah. That, that one is, uh, that one would again, he's great. Because he's still Clint Eastwood. He'll always be Clint Eastwood in his films. But uh, the movie was tough. So, Jeff, we'll wrap up my last one. It's a Western going against what I said. It's Pale Rider. And Pale Rider, to me, was an easy choice. So I saw this one when this was released. I was living in L.A. and I actually saw it at my favorite movie theater, which was the Cinerama Dome. But what, what I thought made this interesting, the Westerns at this stage were considered a dead genre of film there was no Westerns coming out and any Western that did come out, nothing was doing well. And pale Ryder comes out and fucking kicks ass at the box office, you know, comes out. It does great proving that people still wanted to see Clint Eastwood as this quote unquote kind of anti-hero. And this is great. You know, he shows up in this town and he's with this family. Michael Moriarty is in this film and he kind of befriends him. He's got, uh, his wife and then their 14 year old daughter, the lovely Sydney penny. And the, I guess it's the local mining company is trying to take them out and take their land, et cetera. And, and Clint is there to, to make sure that everybody stays straight and work, help this family and protect this family. But, uh, I really enjoyed this film. And I, I remember going into the theater kind of unsure and walking out going, man, that that was really a lot of fun. And Clint Eastwood, you know, to me, he's he's a cowboy, but he, you know he's not a cowboy though, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there are certain like we're talked about Luke Bryant. The, the, he, Luke Bryant comes across as a real cowboy. Clint Eastwood's not. He was the fucking mayor of Carmel, California. He's a you know, he's not a guy that essentially was a cowboy, but he's always going to be, I think, associated going back to his Rawhide days with being a cowboy. And I just thought this was so cool that he was able to do that. And again, Western's being completely dead. The power of Clint Eastwood made this the number one movie for weeks.
0: Yeah, just very quickly, let me just say, uh, Christopher Penn, Sean's brother, great heel performance in this. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite all-time scenes. Uh, Pale Rider is not one of my favorite Clint Eastwood movies. It's a a really good Clint Eastwood movie. My favorite scene, though, is when uh, Sidney Penny, uh, you said the young girl, is in the house with her mom, and she's reading the Bible, and it's, uh, I don't know if it's revelation six or whatever. It's one of the, one of the books of revelation where she said, she says, uh, and there, uh, I beheld a, uh, a writer on a pale horse or something like that. And right then she looks up and you see Eastwood walk, uh, riding into the camp on a white horse and she goes, and his name was death or death followed him or whatever. I, I don't know the exact day. Excuse me for not knowing my biblical scripture, scripture <laughs> quotes, but it's something like that. And that was just such an
1: awesome scene. Yeah, it was an awesome scene. Now, I, who, do you know who directed this film by any chance? Oh, keep talking. This wasn't Clint, though, right? Or was uh, it? I don't know. Let me, let yeah. me just r- Sydney Penny, quick. too. Sydney Penny had a great career, e- even though you know a lot of people don't know. Clint. Who, Clint Eastwood. So it was Clint. Okay. This was her first big role. She was on a TV show called Gidget, but she still works to this day. She's done soap operas and a bunch of stuff, but just beautiful, still very attractive. But Clint did a nice job. And another thing I like about this film, and I think this was one of the criticisms of the movie at the time, Jeff, was this movie does move at a slower pace than a lot of uh, a lot of the other Westerns that Clint has actually worked on or 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 actually directed. This movie does move a little bit slower. But to me, I thought that actually worked. And that scene you just described works because it was done at a slower pace. So,
0: Barry, as we do the big go home on the show today, I know that the folks are excited because an announcement was made recently. Oh, Barry, it's the old CWF Legends Fan Fest coming back to Lutz, Florida in November. Tell the good folks out there where they can get more information about this fine, fine David Penzer led Fan
1: Fest. It, Jeff, I, I could be no more excited to. We've uh, this has been one of those things. that will be two years almost to the day from our last event, and obviously we know uh, you know what what the holdup has been, and uh, throughout this entire period of the pandemic, what's the holdup COVID been? been. Well, what, so what, apparently what? there's been some sort of virus, something oh, okay. going on. Okay, all right, I, I just wanted to make sure. I you know, yeah. I thought
0: that's what it was, but I wanted that's to verify. What,
1: that was what the holdup was, and throughout the entire time, I was like, "Fuck, when can we get back?" When can we do another fan fest? And as you and I both know, the wrestling aspect is great. We want to cover all the bases, but one of the real highlights is getting all of our friends, getting all of our listeners, getting people that we like and love all together, and we can all hang out. And I think this this event coming up, which will be November the sixth of this year in beautiful Lutz, Florida, uh, this may be the biggest contingent of brothers and brother shippers that we have ever seen. So we are, we're very excited. It is November the 6th, 2021 coming to Lutz. Jeff, do you remember the name of the hotel? Can you remember? Cause I uh, can't. It's the, uh, let's
0: see the, the residence in, um, I don't know, something like that. That's pretty good. you <laughs> you
1: started off correctly. It is the residence in by Marriott Tampa Suncoast parkway at North point village. And uh, we are back in the same room. We are going to have uh, the same people taking care of us. Tony, who's been taking care of us for years, there. Uh, very excited to be back, and we've got some big names, Jeff. Oh, oh, uh, oh! oh, oh absolutely, games, we've got we have got Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson, collectively the, known as the, the rock, rock and Roll, and roll Express. Very excited! Hey, everybody, let me tell you about the Rock and Roll.
0: Again, me singing, it's going to cost us uh, listeners, I know. That's so, going to hurt. It yes. can
1: cost me ticket sales as well, Jeff. That's if, true. Uh, Anybody else? Yes, we are going to have, and this is coincidental or maybe not. I don't know, Jeff, but two or three weeks ago, somebody asked a question. Jeff, who is your favorite guest of the Past Six Fan Fest? And you said it was Jody Hamilton, the That's original assassin. Said. He is going to be a featured guest and also doing the cup of coffee event. That we do first thing in the morning, and that it's a kind of a cool thing. We we uh, we sit around with a legend. There's about thirty thirty five people that will sit around, ask questions, and enjoy a cup of coffee with Jody Hamilton. And then we have got Bill Apter, the legendary Bill Apter, you know from the Apter mags. Uh, he is going to be joining us and hosting the Apter party, which will take place. I see what at, you did there. That's good stuff. Yeah, it's, it's right. It's, yeah. yeah pretty good will uh, he be doing he, his dusty roads impression i would imagine and as i was describing him to someone the other day bill after will do every impression known demand whether you like it or not and he will bill bill will come up to you and he will look you in the eyes and start to sing you a barry manilow song Ooh. uh exactly. maybe like pat patterson we can get bill to do karaoke in the evening Oh, I would, I would say that's almost a lock at this point. That's <laughs> going to be doing some form of karaoke. He is a one-man show. It's not that he's doing a one-man show. Bill fucking Apter is a one-man show because he is going to do comedy. He's going to do music. He's got a lot of wrestling stuff. And will he, was he asked- do Jerry? Lou wants to know: Will he do Jerry Lewis? Hey, I, lady! Hey, lady! He will do Jerry Lewis, and uh, he is also going to be bringing a lot of wrestling stuff with him. He is going to show never seen before footage. He's going to do he's going to be broadcasting some interviews that he did 50 years ago in the early 70s with Bruno Sammartino and some other people. You never know what you're going to get with Bill, but I got to tell you, it is going to be worth the price of admission alone. He is that good. Also joining will be Mad Maxine, also making her return from the first FanFest, which will be about four and a half years. Guest on our show a few months back, has a great book that is out there. She will be autographing and selling copies of this book. You can get tickets, of course, by going to the Facebook group, CWF Legends FanFest, or you can go to the Championship Wrestling from Florida Archives group, or you can go directly to Eventbrite. And just type in CWF legends fan fest seven coming your way. Jeff, November the 6th. I am super pumped up for this one.
0: If you have not made in at the very least inquiries, why haven't you? That's what I want to know. Why haven't you? I don't want to hear this crap about, oh, it's a, uh, it's tough. of COVID and so on. no, no, no. You need to be there at the CWF legends fan fest. If nothing else, you're going to want to meet a Dave Penzer, a tremendous, tremendous personality. Just ask him. He'll tell you that. Oh, Barry. (laughs) Uh, And by the way, may I mention Bill Aptor and Mad Maxine, former guest on this fine podcast, Barry. So maybe if we're lucky before the Legends Fan Fest, maybe we can get Ricky and Robert as guests on this show. What do you think?
1: I think so. And I think uh, I can imagine Ricky. Absolutely. Robert is still the quieter of the two, but uh, rock and roll brother, rock and roll. That's it. But I think uh, possibly Jody Hamilton, the original assassin would be, uh, That'd be nice uh too, yeah. yeah. So anyway, before we close out this segment, I want to, uh, I want to
0: talk about something with the, the brother shippers and all those people that are kind enough to give us a listen. Uh, it's about something that uh, happened to me last week. Uh, you know, uh, I don't want this to turn into uh, some sort of modeling type of segment here, but I do feel compelled to mention that, you know, Barry, as a cancer survivor, I had the occasion with my wife to go and see, uh, you know, the the yearly checkup with the dermatologist. Barry, because you're a beachgoer and you love the beach life, uh, are you someone who uh,
1: is a regular attendee with your uh, dermatologist regarding your skin Absolutely, Jeff. I am. uh, So, the recommendation initially for me is to go once per year, which I think it is for a lot of people. And my dermatologist has bumped that up to twice a year, which is a little, you know, it could be a little daunting. But at the same time, I have had, let's be honest, I have, I've been, I have, as my dermatologist said, and I'm quoting on this one, I have mutated my DNA the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. And if she could be complete, she's a hundred percent correct, Jeff, just like you generally are i have I, i'm a I'm somebody who loves to be at the beach or a swimming pool. I love to be outside in the sun. I am constantly, you know, at this point, I could avoid all sun for a year and I would still have the glow like I've been in the sun. So uh,
0: much like the Beatles sing, Barry, truly, you are the sun king. Oh, did you see what I did there? Uh, anyway, the reason I bring all this up is because my wife uh, kind of sort of dragged me to the dermatologist because, you know, I hadn't been in, eh, I want to say a year and a half. Uh, we, we'd gone one time and we're up here. So here's why I'm bringing this up. So, the dermatologist is uh, is checking me out, and they like, you know, look over your back, your chest, your face, da 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 da. And of course, yeah, you know, Barry, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but boy, is it fun when the dermatologist has a group of students in there. With oh. oh, oh, yeah. And here's my group of students, and you're sitting there, and you've basically got this plastic sheet over the, uh, dare I say, the groinal section, okay? And, and uh, much like George Costanza, when you got a group of people in there, sometimes there are significant shrinkage, you know? So I, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a, a shower or a grower at that point. Uh, so anyway, so, uh, the dermatologist is looking me over and he makes this comment to me. He says, you know, you have beautiful skin. Oh, and I said, Oh, that's really nice of you to say. I go, that is uh from a lifetime spent avoiding the sun. Okay. Because much like Barry Rose, my, uh, my brother, Chip, who lives uh, in the Panhandle, uh, Destin, Florida, is one of these every fucking third day is posting a picture of himself at the beach. Oh, I love the beach life, man. I love the beach life. And, you know, does this guy have problems? No, no, no. So me, as he's telling me what beautiful skin I have, I said, well, yeah, Doc, let me ask you one question here. He says, oh, what's that? I said, well, you know, I've got this on the side of my nose when I was at the dermatologist like a year or so ago. I had this thing and it, quite frankly, it looked like kind of like a blackhead. And I'm like, you know, I'm at the point in my life where what the fuck am I doing getting a blackhead? I'm not 17. And he goes, oh, let me take a look at it. And it had come back again. Now, the last dermatologist I went, he just kind of zipped the thing off, you know, froze it. Boom. You're done. Good. Well, the thing fucking came back much like a blackhead or a pimple would. So I'm like, you know, doc, this is getting a little aggravating and it's nothing like you see it. You go, holy shit. Look at that thing. I mean, it's like minute. Okay. So he goes in there and he says, let me take a look at it. I'll just scrape it off. We'll send it to the lab. And he goes, I'm sure it's nothing. Famous quotes. I'm sure it's nothing, he says. And then we have the part where he says, if it's a problem, I'll call you. If it's not a problem, my assistant will call you. Okay. About four days goes by and I'm heading to the old physical therapy and I get a call from his office. And I said, oh, hey, what's up? Well, the doctor wanted you to know that you have a squamous cell carcinoma and you need to have surgery on that. I'm like, say what, what happened to you have beautiful skin? And by the way, uh, the, the, whatever that thing's called the squamous, cell. I'm sure I fucked that up. Uh, and somebody, I think, I think you actually said that correctly. I don't, so you're saying I would be 100% correct (laughs) anyway. So, uh, so now he says you need to, uh, either come into the office and get me to freeze that section, but then it could come back. Or you need to go for Moe's surgery. Barry, have you ever had mo surgery? Not that I'm aware of, Jeff. Okay, so and you're familiar with what it is, though, right? I only by talking with you, I'd never heard of it before. Okay, so mo surgery yeah. for the uninitiated is when you are, are out in the sun or you have a skin condition where they they find something that potentially is skin cancer. What they have to do is you have to like my wife; she got she got it on her wrist for whatever reason, and they go in there and they kind of have to, you know, they of course naturally they the uh, d- Take your uh, the section and they freeze it, or they put you know the the novocaine in, and they go in there and they basically scrape out a little section. They put it under the microscope to make sure they get all the the skin cancer, and then they say, oh, you're fine, and you know you just need to treat your your where where we've done it. You know you put a, a bandage on it, and you you take some uh, antibiotics, that kind of stuff. Well, unfortunately, mine is on the side of my nose. Yes, a lovely place. So do you know what that means, Barry? That means I have to go in for Mohs surgery. And they have to put Novocaine into my nose. Yes, the injection directly into my nose on the side and then underneath because you're going in there. And holy shit, if you want to talk about some discomfort. I mean, this is not like, holy fuck, I'm going to die. But this is like some severe discomfort. So then, of course, your nose is completely frozen. It's sort of like Flaherty on a Saturday night. <laughs> See what I did there. Bear? <laughs> nice. And so, uh, so anyway, so, uh, they go in there and she's talking to me and I'm like, you know, just having a conversation with the the doctor. And then she says, yeah, we're done. And so then the nurse comes in, they do the follow up and stuff like that. But in the meantime, I go home with this huge bandage on the side of my face. Only time that it's good to have, Uh, The mask uh, for the COVID that you're wearing because no one can see this huge bandage on the side of your face. So anyway, so uh, as we speak today, uh, I'm finally starting to heal up. It's getting better. I have a couple more days of the antibiotics. I don't have to do a follow-up unless there's a problem. But the whole reason I'm telling you this story, my pain, my discomfort, my agony at having this freakish scar currently, hopefully not long-term, is to tell you good folks out there, man, woman, or child, you need to make regular appointments with your dermatologist. Have them look at your skin. Why am I saying this, Barry? First of all, it's good for you. Second of all, I asked the doctor, I said, oh, let me just ask you the theoretical question here, doc. You know, you, you said this is a very small, it's very tiny. Uh, it's what they call the slowest growing and slowest acting form of cancer. But of course, Barry, as I told you uh, when we spoke privately, you know, you're a cancer survivor. You hear any kind of the C word and you go, holy fuck, what does that mean? It's a natural response, right? So I said, if I had not done anything about this, if I said, fuck your advice, doc, I'm going to leave this alone. I'm a tough guy. I'm going to, I'm going to just take this on my own. What could have happened? She said, well, in theory, what could happen is one day, eh, say you'll be in the shower or something and you'll start coughing and you look down and you see that you're coughing up blood which means the cancer has now spread to your lungs. Ah. At that point, I said, Doc, go ahead and whack that thing off. Uh, I'll deal with whatever scar I have. So anyway, that is my message to you, good folks in the brothership, brothers, sisters, and children out there. I don't know. Do we have kids listening? I don't really know, Barry. Uh, But I want to encourage you to take care of that. So now, that being said, on behalf of my co-host, Barry Rose, and our producer, the sweet man, Luke Kippelman, I will tell you that breaking kayfabe, your medical... Your medical podcast, Barry, is a production <laughs> of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Good Lord, I hope we don't have some other kind of problem next week. Take it home.